Star Wars did that, Indiana Jones, everybody did that in the future, but when they were doing it here, uh, it's, it's, it's impressive. Cinematic Fantastic. Atul, Barada, Nikto. I'll show you who I am and what I am. By a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes. As we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. If you wanted something to do in between seasons, when you're missing us dearly and life feels uneven, we'll stop on by and give you a lift. Brought you a present. He brought you a gift. This, this is, is a bonus, bonus episode. episode. A little, little bit, bit different from, from the ones you know. know. Four theme movies in a row. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the bonus. bonus. Thankful that you joined us. Now, now here's, here's the, the bonus. Alright. Welcome to Cinematic Fantastic Cinematic Classics. Yes, this is our bonus month, guys. Going through four movies. This is the second in our series of amazing things. Last time, uh, we did M by Fritz Lang. That one was really good. Uh, I, I've remembered that movie. Every time I see it, it sticks with me. The, if, if you could say anything about that movie, it's that it kind of lodges itself in your brain. But if you're really interested... Or if you, you missed last episode, you really missed out. You really need to listen to that one. I mean, you've got the time. Yeah. And your brain your brain is going to say Dunka Shane to you, uh, greatly so. All right, so we watched a movie. Guess what that movie is called? Citizen Kane. <laughs> it's it's kind of daunting. It's like approaching, you know, Everest or like Kilimanjaro or something and staring at it like the like the Celeste poster. A bit daunting coming at, you know, what's considered the greatest movie of all time. But, yeah, Citizen Kane is uh, directed by Orson Welles. It's a 1941 film. Mm -hmm. 1941. And um, most would not believe it. You could probably, assuming from last episode, if you did listen to that one, you you have a girlfriend that's also bilingual, but that doesn't matter for what I'm about to say. <laughs> you, pull, you pull the movie on, but before you do, you go, oh, whoops, um... I, I messed with the wrong cable, and now uh, there's no color. So uh, there definitely totally is color. It's just not displaying on the screen uh, right now. But let's go watch uh, a movie called Citizen Kane. You put it up right in front of her, and then ask her about it when it came out. She would not be able to say it was 1942 at all. I, I mean, she could. <laughs> 41. 41. But she probably could not be able to tell. It's even blowing your mind. You can't even figure out the year. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The thing I will say about this movie is a lot of the conventions of of cinematography, of music, special effects, optical effects, uh, editing, um, camera angles, that's cinematography, right? Um, all those things, those things we take for granted as just being Hollywood, you know, the, the way that, that people film movies. But those those things, this movie didn't invent those things. Those aspects of film were done in other movies prior to this. But what Orson Welles did is he took all of those elements and he put it into a perfected format. 
that is probably why we call it the greatest movie of all time is because it is very great on multiple levels. The story is good. But it is very well told. One thing that I would like to let people know is if they're going, I'm expecting to be blown away uh, by the story. There's, you know, it's just the most amazing story it's ever been. You're bound not to if you live in the 2000s era. It's a little bit dry, but the thing is, the things that this movie does, and how it plays with time and the, mo- the motion of time, it's been used in so many other movies, that convention of, t- of telling the story backwards. I mean, you got movies like, uh, I mean, uh, Memento and is a modern film. It's- yeah, and most people during this time, you know, they'd watch a movie, they'd usually expect it to be linear. Maybe there's, you know, the occasional flashback, but this story is entirely non-linear because it's being told... Uh, from the future, because I mean, this was fifty years ago uh, that they talk about stuff. So uh, let's just go into it. First of all, we've been talking about Citizen Kane. You're like, well, what's it actually about? Citizen Kane is a movie about a man, a man's journey through life, his great uprisings, and his greater downfall. Uh, a man who presented himself as an advocate for the people, but inwardly was manipulating the world all for power. Uh, Because he knew not of humble living and lowly stance. Another factor is that uh, the news are trying to encapsulate a man in his life in this story. And they're trying to solve a puzzle uh, made out of biased, old, and unreliable sources. And those all culminate in this, you know, what seems like an epic uh, story. And um, there's also a great quote by uh, Orson Welles we'll play here. And as he says... What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? We may never be able to know. It, it also has the convention in the storytelling of the unreliable narrator. Because in each of these people, they're telling the story. They have their own uh, bias, like you said. Bias. Uh, they have their own uh, way that they view Charles Foster Kane. And a lot of the people here uh, are old as well. They're very old, so... Uh, they're bound to not have, you know, a unbiased, you know, absolute remembering of Yeah, the it's not crystal clear. And sometimes emotion emotion can cloud memory as well. It's how there's a lot of emotion uh, wrapped up in how these individuals in the story relate to Mr. Kane and how they see him and, and, and why he did what he did and and honestly, it uses, it uses the convention of – use that word again. Use the convention of this word that Charles uh, Foster Kane says as he's dying. Rosebud. And it becomes the mystery that everybody's trying to figure out. But ultimately, ultimately, it's just a, something to, to move the story along or to give the story – a reason, but you know, it's it's the portrait of a man from different people's perspectives. You didn't know who this story was about if you weren't during that time. You can definitely relate to, I think, um, the character of Charles Foster Kane. He, he's similar to a lot of you know politicians, rich people, um, you know, celebrities. I mean, I mean, we are you know the former president of the United States was a was a wealthy celebrity, so. You know, how can you not relate to some of that? And we've got, you know, people like Michael Jackson, who who uh, when he was alive had a, a place called the Neverland Ranch, which was, you know, kind of a giant. Uh, it was almost like a modern day Xanadu. And, and what you'll find out what Xanadu is uh, when you listen to our podcast now. But if, if you've seen the movie, you'll understand it, it does look quite 
if you're old enough or young enough to remember Michael Jackson and his Neverland Ranch, if you look at it, you'd be like, wow, that's very similar to what Charles Foster Kane was doing with uh, Xanadu. And And there was also a particular point that there was another very, very, very accurate, you know, inspiration uh, for Charles Foster Kane as well. Yeah, uh, a famous media baron, big in journalism, and he also kind of dabbled in politics. His name was uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, if most people don't know who that, that is, uh, if you were in the 40s, you definitely know who that guy was. This guy, he he did the newspapers just like Citizen Kane. He had a castle just like Citizen Kane. It was called uh, San, San Simeon. He had a girlfriend just like Citizen Kane. There's some differences between the uh, mistress or girlfriend character as played by Dorothy Gore. Dorothy Comingore is a name I'm going to repeat. Dorothy Comingore. I won't have to repeat it much longer. You'll be repeating it. Uh, she played um, uh, Susan Alexander, right? Uh, there's differences between her and the mistress girlfriend of William Randolph Hearst. There's differences. But another inspiration that seems to upper it is that, you know, of Orson Welles as well. Uh, he seems to have put um, a lot of his character into. And Orson Welles is the, the director. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. Of the movie? Producer, director. The producer, the director, the co-writer. Co-wrote the screenplay. You know, he was was in every part of it, just about. And he starred the main character, Citizen Kane. And um, he put a lot of himself into the character, which a lot of things I noticed. And as we'll talk about, you know, the production history, which Dad is going to do, I might bring some of the moments that seem to relate a lot to... Uh, the movie Citizen Kane and Orson Welles. I feel like that's an interesting fact. But um, another thing, indeed, people are wondering, we said the greatest movie of all time. Now, let's let's debunk that, Dad. Well, here's the thing. I don't like it when someone says something is the greatest, you know, because I've, I've had people even ask me questions. You know, I had, had somebody ask me, who do you think is the greatest, you know, five greatest wrestlers of all time? And I can't, I couldn't do it. Because there were so many different, you know, these, it's, trying to, it's trying to say, you know, what's the greatest food that's ever been created? What's the greatest book that's ever been created? What's the greatest film? I can't do that. I can only say one of. You know, I can say one of the greatest. Because there's a lot of great movies, and it's all especially up to some opinion as well. But, I mean, there's, you know, The Godfather. You might think that's really great. Uh, you might like The Wizard of Oz. You think that's really great. Um, uh, what else? Uh, King Kong and Pinocchio, those are all really great. 2001 Space Odyssey, Jaws, there's all sorts of good... A lot of those are on these lists, but American Film Institute, um, they are widely uh, recognized in their field. They have uh, a list called 100 Years, 100 Movies. Um, They update that uh, every so often as as new movies come out that, that should be on this list. But it's been on the list in the top for the longest time. But I will tell you that when this movie came out, it was not appreciated for what it was, and we'll talk about that soon. So let's go into let's go into it now. Like I said, uh, it was a critical success. I mean, I mean, people did you know the ones that did uh, write reviews of it that were not in uh, any of uh, William Randolph Hearst's uh, newspapers. That is, they did uh, you know g- give it high marks. 
but it did not it did not recoup its costs at the box office. You know, later on we'll in this in this podcast we'll talk about the original budget. I think it was five hundred thousand and he went three hundred thousand over budget. It was like eight hundred something over in total. There's but there are certain scenes that if he had spent what they told him to spend, it would have been okay. But because he spent a little bit extra on certain scenes, like uh, like one scene is the scene at the very beginning when uh, there's a lot of journalists that are in a in a smoky room with the with the way the lighting is, which is just really cool looking. That one went went from five hundred dollars to eight hundred, and I was like, yes, <laughs> do that scene. It's uh it's better uh, for it. Um, let's see. Uh, there's so many top lists that Citizen Kane is on now. Is it? Is it just for you know the acting or the screenplay? Um, it, although it's been nominated for many of the different things that it that uh, that are you know cinematography, music, editing, it's been nominated for all those things for Academy Awards. Um, I think it only, it only won one. I it think. only won the script one. Yes, and and deservedly so. But I will say that it was a conspiracy. I think um, on the part of, you know, the, it's, it's how much control this Hearst guy had. I, it, it has to be. So let's talk about one word that's been used for this movie. Um, uh, and it's a lot of movies and a lot of paintings, and a lot of different things. You'll hear this word bandied about, but masterpiece. Okay. So what is masterpiece? Okay. Any great work of art, but originally referred to a work that an apprentice would present before becoming the member of a guild, a piece of work that displayed the full command of their skill over their art. And with Orson Welles, this was indeed. I would have to agree because the reason why it's a, f- a full showing of, of the art that this is a masterpiece, is it Orson Welles's masterpiece? I think it's a, a collaborative effort. A lot of people would say, oh, it, it was all Orson. No, it was a collaborative effort. It's just that he he knew what he wanted to do and he didn't want anybody to tell him what he couldn't do and he didn't know what he couldn't do he just because he was new to this this was his first film what i'd like to know is where did you get the confidence from to make ignorance. a film with such ignorance sheer ignorance you know there's no confidence to equal it it's only when you know something about a profession i think that you're timid or careful or... how does this ignorance show itself I thought you could do anything with a camera that the eye could do or the imagination could do. And if you come up from the bottom in the film business, you're taught all the things that the cameraman doesn't want to attempt for fear he will be criticized for having failed. Yes. And in this case, I had a cameraman who didn't care if he was criticized if he failed, and I didn't know that there were things you couldn't do. So anything I could think up in my dreams, I attempted to photograph. And he was just like, okay, what can we do? He he even said this was the greatest. Uh, this is like giving a train set to a little boy. That's how. That's how much he was like. He said that's what Holly. You know what Hollywood yeah, felt like. Hollywood to him. feels like a electric train set where you can just make it do anything. You're like, ooh, because you're a little boy. But it's interesting when you know when when we get to plot, we'll talk about this. But uh, he, it's interesting that he compares it to a little boy with a toy. Interesting. This because because of you know what you when you the very first scenes of Citizen Kane you know when it goes to the flashback to Charles Foster Kane as a little boy what is he doing but playing? Um, that's that's a stretch, I believe. But 
I feel like it's he's saying that because the, it's the overall, you know, you get a glee. Like, if you get a Christmas present, and it's like a train set, and you're a little boy, and it's like, if it's like a Thomas the Tank Engine, you know, you got that, and it's just like, oh, man, what am, I'm going to do is good stuff with this. When you were a kid, you pre- pretended and played, and there was no limits, because your imagination just was. You didn't have to wait and say, well, we can't do this and we can't do that. It just is. When it, you know, your imagination let you be a knight on a horse and galloping, even though you were on a broomstick. Especially since he had a contract with RKO saying, we're not going to meddle with your movie. You get the final say on the cuts. You get the final say on all of this. You know, you get to do what you want to do, boo. (laughs) You do you, boo, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and um, so he was just like, you know, I want to do this, and, um, you know, that's not really conventional, bro. Oh, but I actually, I, I want to do this, man. I'm, I'm going to do this. So that that's what he did. And that's why this movie is just so unconventionally great, because he had, you know, full freedom over it. And I don't know if there's any actually been any... Uh, has there been other instances of that much freedom given toward I the don't movie? Th- I don't think so. I don't it's, think so th- either. Thank you, thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for bringing that up. Because one thing that uh, later on in Orson Welles' life that he said is he said that I think that the whole thing about film, it was simultaneously the greatest thing he had ever done and simultaneously the biggest burden on him because he was given all that freedom – and he did everything he could, but it wasn't appreciated, I think, at the time for what it was uh, it, because it had elements that could be attributed to, hey, this is you're making this movie about this fictional character, but there's elements of it. Of this real character. Of this real person that's got all this power, this real-life power that can hold your career in the palm and of his hand. you're making him look like a clown, basically. Yeah. You, well, you're exposing a lot of what this person was. And and I think that that's part of the issue is is that as we'll see, Hearst kept this movie from being, from being talked about or reviewed. Um, I was talking to William earlier about cancel culture. I won't go into that too deeply, but all it takes is is a group of people to start a campaign of hatred against you as an actor or your movie or whatever, and they can sink it if you don't watch it. But I'm really glad that he got that creative freedom to be able to do the things he wanted on the screen to where it could be good. Oftentimes in the movies, especially with his later career, there's a lot of corporate meddling. And unless you go, unless you go indie, what's there to do? You, your, your creative vision is being messed up. You know, what if you're uh, working with EA and they're just like, hey, can we put microtransactions in your game? It's in the game. And I'm like, well, no, I don't really want that. Challenge. Uh, by, I want my creative vision, and but you still want that, you know, corporate giving you resources to be able to do things, and then otherwise it's like, you know, you got to disconnect with them to get your vision, uh, but would you want to, to sacrifice all those resources by EA, for instance? So, again, this was never done again, but that probably was a contributing factor to why this is, you know, a very great movie is because of his creative freedom where there hasn't really been any where other you got time that. of history. Honestly, I don't mean to focus on one one or two people in the cast above all others. We will probably not see these 
actors, a lot of these actors again, uh, because of the, the, the kind of the genre that we're doing, uh, we, we might, and it's kind of interesting. We may see, uh, some other, uh, visiting people like, you know, the things, people that we recognize from early on here. Um, a lot of the cast, uh, were members of the, the Mercury Theater on uh, a radio as well as... Theater, actually. The, the, theater, exactly. But that's what Orson Welles was uh, the leader of. This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater. Yes, he started it. So most of the actors in this movie were part of the Mercury Theater and were also new, which is uh, very interesting. There was one character that... Uh, one actor here that, that had been in a lot of... A, a good handful of other movies. Uh, and that's, that's just the waiter. The waiter... In the uh, uh, restaurant, uh, whatever the the you know what do we call it? The um, actually, it's the El Rancho. So he was kind of like, uh, it was kind of one of those moments where you know, uh, if if you were to ask Orson Welles what did he wish, and he, he wished he had another actor to play that that waiter, just because he wanted complete people that were completely new to all this, and and he was like, okay, yeah, it's one of those th- it's one of those things. He's a perfectionist uh, at heart. So it's kind of where it's like, oh, okay, you so gotta let that go. So that's where you also get another of that factor of why it's a really great movie is because you know he's a perfectionist. He's he's making this a, his best movie. He told the story really well, and there's just absolutely many factors of which are very innovative and very well done. I will tell you this right now. One of the top things that I think about when I think about Citizen Kane is not necessarily the acting because Orson Welles is great in it. I mean, he was on radio in the Mercury Theater, so... He was he was like twenty nineteen twenty years old man. He already had that baritone voice. I know that your your voice is, has some depth to it, but his voice was like you know I'm Charles you know Orson awesome Welles. I'm Charles yeah. Foster Kane. Yeah, he had that voice, and he directed this film at at twenty five. One of the greatest films ever made. He directed it at and it 25. was his first movie. His first out. How do you follow that up? So a lot of people think of him as a legend for that. Yeah, uh, my first try out of the gate, uh, and it was one of the great one of the greatest films ever made. But anyway, back to this. So um, I will tell you, um, most if not all of everybody was from Mercury Theater on stage or radio. Dorothy Commongore Dorothy Commongore was not. She plays Susan Alexander, uh, Charles Foster Kane's second wife. She was actually introduced to Orson Welles at a gala or benefit or like a get-together or something. And I think that uh, Charlie Chaplin, the famous comedian, silent film actor, uh, a lot of his films are on YouTube, uh, by the way, William. And they're, and they're, he's a comic genius. He really is. He introduced Dorothy to him and said, "This you got, you got to work with her. She's, she, did stu- she actually did stuff before this. She did some silent films. She was a ta- very talented person. Wait a second. Wait a second. I think I'm getting him. I'm getting her. You know what? I'm getting her mixed up with Marion Davies, who is the silent film actress who actually uh, was the mistress. But actually, they had some very similarities uh, in in how that they came up. It's very interesting. These these characters are getting intertwined. Yes, yeah, so you're intertwining Susan Alexander Kane and Marion Davies and Dorothy Commongore too. And Dorothy Commongore. She had some very some similarities, but anyway, that's easy to make a mistake. Yeah, yeah. So let's do a you know it's a bird's eye zip through uh, news on the march, as it were, of Orson Welles's life. One thing I found was interesting is there's a connection with uh, Orson Welles and Herbert George Wells, H.G. Wells 
who did uh, who who wrote the book War of the Worlds, uh, which is a has a connection to him. Oh yeah, because he did the infamous radio special, The War of the Worlds. Orson Welles's name is George Orson Welles, so he he's a George Welles too, which is interesting. I th- I found that interesting. I, that's just me. So he was born in 1915. Uh, his mother died of hepatitis when he was very young. So interestingly enough, his mother was taken from him, but of course it was by death and not by the circumstances that Charles Foster Kane had. Uh, his father traveled with him quite a bit. So uh, because, I mean, this is even when he was young, he was getting exposed to cultures and peoples from all over the world. Uh, he was getting cultured. He wasn't just this American, just American guy who only understood how America works. He, he, he saw other places as well. There's a biographer, uh, Frank Brady. He said, uh, during the three years that Orson lived with his father, some of observers wondered who took care of whom. Because his father was, was alcoholic, frequently drunk, the older brother of Orson Welles was institutionalized. His name was Richard. So he didn't have him there, and so he was kind of all by himself. So, so in a way, uh, he got a lot, a lot more of the focus in some ways. He didn't really have a chance to be a young child, just like uh, Charles Foster Kane didn't have a chance to really play all that much. Uh, once he was taken away from his mother, like you, if you watch the movie, you'll see, um, you know, his childhood was gone. And, and that's kind of a part of this, uh, this, this puzzle that you put together in watching the movie. So he went to a, a school called the Todd Seminary for Boys. It was an independent school. He gained his love for the arts there, poetry, plays, radio performance. They had they had their own radio station there, and that's where he's kind of got his voice in doing that. And that's that's where it all started. They even did uh, simplified uh, Shakespeare plays. Orson Welles is famous for his, his, his Shakespeare productions that he both acted in and also directed. He did direct uh, Othello. Right. Oh, he he acted in Othello. Oh, he acted in Othello. I think he did actually wear. Uh, blackface kind of thing so which a lot of actors did so hey you know uh for to play othello i think uh, nowadays you have you know if they have an actor play othello i think uh there was a movie version where uh uh, lawrence fishburne played him uh and he's a black man so they they would not do that nowadays but back in the day that's just what you did so um his father died and it was during a time he died of heart and kidney failure uh when he's 58 um, so he did not have a father, uh, and he had, he got a guardian up oh, saint, just exactly like Charles Foster Kane did. He did, did see? base it a lot of, you know, William Randolph Hearst, of himself. There's just a ton of sources. Yeah, but the guardianship thing with the Mr. Thatcher character, it's just very interesting. Maurice Bo- uh, Bernstein was a family friend and that's, that became his guardian. Um, he was, he was, he was awarded scholarships and he could have gone to anything, but he, he, he traveled, he traveled across Europe and he actually, you know, did like almost like how people do nowadays with doing a backpacking trip across Europe. Um, he, he was on a donkey cart going across Europe and he like just, he just, he went into Ireland, went into Dublin and he saw that they were like, uh, putting on a play and, and they wanted auditions. He came and said, he said, uh, and this is something about Orson Welles is he's very famously a showman, a storyteller. So he's going to tell a few fibs now and again about himself. He said, the, I'm a Broadway star. My name is Orson Welles and I, I want to be in your play. And they just go, they auditioned and they went, okay. So he did, <laughs> he just, he just would travel across Europe and he just decided to be in a, be in a play for like weeks. But he did get onto the Mercury Theater stuff he as well. He did. There. What he did is he went to London and he couldn't get a work permit, so he went back to. That's what caused him to go back to America, and because he did 
that, that's where he um, started working in radio and stage dramas. So he worked as a radio actor with many other actors who would actually form the core of the Mercury Theater. Now, early on, he actually did work and, and, and produce plays and produce theater. He did one with a man he met called John Houseman, who actually helped him start the Mercury Theater. John Houseman was the director of the Negro Theater Unit in New York, and there was a thing called a Federal Theater Project, and it actually used money from the WPA, which was Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I think. Uh, it was the New Deal. It was a th- trying to get us out of the Depression. Uh, they spent money, and they spent money into the arts. So basically, in this Negro Theater Project, uh, they were uh, – and, and Wells actually took his paycheck from that – and funneled it back into the uh, the projects that he would work on. So basically, they paid him, and then he put the money right back in the project. So he said it was like a reverse siphoning of money back into it. So but it's they, just like you, I just just take it out, put it back in. There was a famous uh, adaptation he did of William Shakespeare's Macbeth with an entirely African American cast, which had not been seen up to that time, and it, the, he did it as if it was on a on a Haitian island. You know, with voodoo, you know, like with the in Macbeth, you have the three witches and they're doing sorcery. But this one, they made them, uh, you know, voodoo priests. Something wicked this way comes. Something wicked this way comes. Yeah. Yeah. They changed it to a kind of a mythical island. If the nickname of it is is Voodoo Macbeth um, because of that. Yeah. He also did some other plays. There was another one that he did called Caesar Julius. It was his version of Julius Caesar. And he used these uh lights and shadow and in such a way you see where i'm going with this it the lights and the shadow that he used uh he did it based upon some things he saw in in nazism and fascist uh, imagery and it caught the eye of of a man named greg toland who later came in and said that he saw something in his use of light and shadow that it inspired him to really seek him oh, out Oh, and that was the dude he was the cinematographer on this movie oh he is He's amazing. You know, he got a lot of that. He was like, you know, let's do the stuff with the shadows. I think there was a stagecoach did a little bit of that or something. Stagecoach is what Orson Welles watched and uh, to learn. He learned a lot about what he thought filmmaking was from Stagecoach. But Greg Toland, after they had met, uh, and this was after Archeo, you know, uh, you know, He taught him everything that he knew, and he goes like, well, you know, the reason why we do this is that and the other. And then he went like, nah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Stagecoach is what Orson Welles thought, you know, was the language of film. But Greg Toland kind of taught him fresh, you know, how we do that. And honestly, I think the movie is what it is in a lot of uh, ways to to Greg Toland. We'll we'll go into that. One of the things that, that got people interested... Oh, he, oh, he did Caesar under the Mercury Theater. Thank you. One of the things that got people interested was uh, there was a very famous incident. Uh, remember we mentioned at the beginning of the War of the Worlds. Well, he did a radio version of War of the Worlds, but he did it in such a way that... People thought it was actually real. Yes, it was a Halloween episode uh, of the radio series Mercury, Mercury Theater on the Air. And it was October 30th, 1938. It was, it was a two... Yeah, two or three years before the movie would come out, the uh, the movie Citizen Kane would come out. So he's uh, what they did is he started out. I've I've heard it by the way. He starts it out and goes, "This is a production of the Mercury Theater, the Air of War of the Worlds." I'm Orson Welles. Da 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 da. And then later on into it, they start 
he says something like he's starting the, you know, kind of as a journalist that's a radio news person that's reporting what's going on. But then he stops and it goes right back into this music. So a lot of what happened was, uh, the, and then, then the music would get interrupted by somebody saying, you know, well, we, we, we have word that in Grover's Mill, uh, New Jersey, there is uh, some strange goings on. We, we take you now to such and such person on the scene. Big So the realism of how the the radio would normally go in a normal cycle versus this uh, doing, and no one heard the actual intro where they're saying this is Orson Welles War of the Worlds. Yeah, they they thought it was real, and they're all like, "There are aliens around!" Ah, yeah, yeah, but getting the police on it and such yeah, and such. But here's the thing: the the thing I always heard was that people, you know, were had shotguns and they were outside, go, you know, running around, going to you know, and the the cops were called and. And the, and the switchboard operators were going crazy. Uh, the thing is, is that really the case? Because you can actually look at the phone calls that came through and the amount of those and how many cops were called out. And your thought process is, was it, you know, was it really as bad as they say? Or was it overblown? Overall, people weren't really excited about it at all. It was not really great. It spread throughout the throughout the world and stuff. I thought uh, it was good. It says here in your notes that Adolf Hitler mentioned it. Yes, that's funny because you know we get a character it, it, Charles Foster Kane interacting with Adolf Hitler, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Well, the th- thing that I think happened is see the 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 word spread. Of the effect of this radio broadcast. Oh, and this is where Archeo went, oh, we see this man, this man uh, looking like he'd be really good yeah. to do a movie, and they drawed him in and went, okay, sign a contract, you get all this freedom, go do your thing, man, we want to see what you got, you look like you're very capable, and that's what he did. They wanted him to do two motion pictures. Uh, and really, the guy that really wanted him really, really bad was uh, Archeo Radio Pictures president uh, George Schaefer. Now, the thing is, uh, this was a the greatest contract offered to a filmmaker. And we've talked about how... how there was not really any instance of uh, any time where they gave so much freedom to a person to do creative stuff while under the backing of a, a, a higher-up company. Because there's often, you know, corporate meddling in order to, you know, maybe we add this so we get money. Maybe we do this to save some money. Maybe we do all this for the purpose of was such and such. Well, the people from RKO were not allowed to be on set, but that didn't stop them from trying to spy on... Oh, yeah. There was a story where it's like he told RKO that they were doing test shots 
uh, for Citizen Kane and stuff. Yes. And then they got through, like, half the film, basically, I think. Yes. And then they finally got a guy from RKO to spy on them and go, oh, God, my goodness, they've done, like, half the whole film already. And <laughs> we thought they were doing test shots. Yeah, what about, what about playing softball? There was a part where... Some, some of the guys actually got on set and they were like, okay. And the, all the actors got together on the back lot and started playing softball. So that they would think that they're not actually working, but well, they were. It, yeah, or, or, to, or till the people would get bored and go away. They're, it's, like whist, it's like whistling after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, though, this, this was a, a big gamble. Um, his first two movie proposals they rejected, but they agreed on the third. I think the title of it was going to be called The American. Uh, that's what the early drafts actually call it, but eventually it would be called Citizen Kane, which is what we're talking about today. Yeah, it's a movie about a guy who happens to be, you know, American. Uh, my, my, an American guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought of that one during this recording. Oh, yeah. I just had to. American. My American Got guy. Got the honey and the dunny and the whatever. Why? That's not how it goes. So bye-bye, Miss America. I don't quite it's, remember. It's a song. It's a song called "American Pie." I know. I know. <laughs> my my, this here American guy. So he conceived the project with a screenwriter named Herman J. Bankowitz, who was writing radio plays for the Campbell Playhouse. Which actually, the Mercury Theater on the air got taken over by this other guy named Campbell who was kind of muscling his way in. So uh, that's that's where they had a connection. And this is a big contention in the, the Wellesian, you know, fan base where they're like, okay, who is the actual one who wrote Citizen Kane? Because there was a lot of tussling back and forth over credit where it's like, hey, who wrote the actual movie? Because Orson Welles pulled ahead in a bunch of moments and, like, Megowitz was also doing some stuff. So it's like, it was... Honestly, fairly co-written, I guess, overall, it seems that Orson Welles, you know, lined it up into bombasticness while Mankiewicz was doing uh, other stuff. But he was yeah, all, like, trying to take the but credit. Mankiewicz was funny. He's a pretty great guy, but it's he, just yeah, like, you know, he wanted... He had his foibles, okay? He, he, he drank a little heavily. He, he had a car wreck, I think. He crashed into somebody at some point. But he wanted his credit, and Orson Welles was taking a lot of the stuff. And he was like, this is unfair, I guess. And so there's a lot of contention over who actually wrote Citizen Kane. A lot of times he was uncredited, but he did work on also The Wizard of Oz. Pride of the Yankees is another one. I think that's about Lou Gehrig. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man. On the face of the earth. Uh, but a lot of different stuff. And this was often, you know, a bit weird because they wrote it kind of weirdly. Mankiewicz, you know, wrote his draft. Uh, Orson Welles wrote his draft. And Orson Welles combined the both of them, taking things that he liked from both of them. Mainly his stuff, though, probably. So that's where, you know, he pulls ahead and all the stuff. The controversy in the modern world kind of came in, in 1971. There was a film critic named Pauline Kael, and she wrote two almost like book-length 
pieces that would become a book-link essay called Raising Cain. Yeah. Um, it appeared in two consecutive issues of The New Yorker. And actually, she wrote a Citizen Kane book uh, later that year, and she included that as the preface. It's about making the film, but the thing that it's most remembered for is a claim that Orson Welles did not write a single word of the script and stole credit away from Herman J. Mankiewicz. And I think some of those elements are But actually, I mean, he was like, you know what? I'm the one making the picture, after all. Well, I had to make the decisions. And yes. You know what? I used what I wanted from Mankiewicz's, and um, I kept what I liked of my own draft. That's sort of story. That's true. But see, the thing that Pauline Kale was getting that from was the a secretary named Rita Alexander, I think, or Rita something. She was... Um, Remember I had said that uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz was, had an accident? Well, he was in Victorville, California, which uh, Orson Welles calls it the desert, uh, out in the middle of the desert. But in, <laughs> in Victorville, Herman J. Mankiewicz is, is – or just to call him Mankiewicz or Mank. Mank is, is recovering, so he, is, he can't type up the, the script or the screenplay. So and he, so Orson Welles writes it for him just like Citizen Kane? No, he's dictating it to Rita Alexander. Oh. So Rita Alexander is going, well, he's just pretty much writing the whole script. Uh, she sends it off to Orson Welles, and Orson Welles has his own secretary who has a different story. And she says that it was it was a collaborative thing, but Mankiewicz wrote a lot of exposition, a lot of stuff. And the Rosebud part as well. Yes, but you know that uh, the movie, you know, at certain points moves at a good clip. It does this back-and-forth editing that's just really well done. And that was Orson Welles's, you know, he was from radio, and radio is very snappy, you know, if you listen to, like, sports people talking excitedly. It was kind of like that sort of... And they, they talked over each other in, in, in some ways. I think in the, in the, there's some scenes where you see they're talking over each other, and you get some elements... And that's one of the great things about the movie is the dialogue is just so great, so it, it witty. It does crackle. The story is very well done. The makeup is great. The cinematography is great. Just uh, all the things. Yes. So the the thing is, when that came out, you know, a lot of people were. Orson Welles was, was he? He died in 1985, so he was still alive when that article came out, and he was like, "This is just this is not true." It's it's, and people were like, "Well, maybe she's right." But the thing is, though, I don't think she was entirely right because um, there's another director, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, who is actually a disciple of of Orson Welles. You know, when he was younger, uh, he. Um, the cult of Orson. Uh, but he, he says that that's not true because he actually had scripts that Orson wrote, uh, especially of the more of the end sequences, the parts that really, you know, go into the part of Charles Foster Kane's uh, life that doesn't necessarily line up with the William Randolph Hearst kind of connections. Yeah. A lot, there's a lot more Orson maybe in this than Mankiewicz, but uh, they butted heads over. The co-writing of it, and 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 he finally just went, okay, here, you know, let's put Mankiewicz as the credit, yeah, and then eventually he decided, wait, no, let's just say we co-written it, and that's probably the truest answer you could ever give. I don't think he was trying to steal credit, but honestly, raising Cain, the article kind of painted Orson Welles as kind of a megalomaniac, and you know that. You know, everybody always said that he was like this boy wonder. You know that he went from when he was young. He's just this intelligent, brilliant guy. So of course he's going to say, "Well, I did it all." You know, to kind of you know he's kind of self promoting. Hey, you know what? Wait a minute. Do you remember that? There's a scene when William talks about the plot. He's going to talk about this. There's a scene where Charles Foster Kane, Orson Welles playing Charles Foster Kane. He says, "We're going to be a great opera star." 
We're going to be a great opera star. Are you going to sing at the Metropolitan, Mrs. Kane? We certainly are. Opera singer. He said, we are. We, we are? Don't, uh, uh, wait a minute. So Susan Alexander is going to do most of the singing, but you're saying we are because... He's going to take credit for power and stuff. Well, he's like, I made you what you are, pretty much, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So if you think about it, are there some of those elements in there? So there was a ton of things happening, you know, butting heads of the script, doing a bunch of things undercover from RKO, filming... All the things, and there's also William Randolph Hearst having heard of its production going on oh. and going, actually, this is offensive toward me. Let me try and shut it down. Yes. And um, he was doing all he could to shut down the production. It's just a big race to the finish. Well, there's enough elements that are similar to William Randolph Hearst that he got really upset by it. So he was definitely pretty right for feeling those feelings, but... I mean, there's just, you know, it was a big race toward the finish trying to catch up before William Randolph Hearst shut down the production for good. I think Louis B. Mayer, it says, um, actually came in and was like, how about we, you know, destroy the negatives, destroy all the stuff? They were, yeah, they were trying to pressure them to shelve this movie. Because he thought it was, you know, like spreading lies about William Randolph Hearst. And he's well, like. Well, Hearst, Hearst was pulling Louis B. Mayer's uh, strings. Also, the other thing that William Randolph Hearst could do was he either would talk about you nonstop in a bad way in his newspapers or, or he, he just didn't talk about you at all. He didn't even talk about the movie at all. Yeah. Which is what happened. Citizen Kane released. Uh, the critics were all like, yeah, this is amazing. Definitely really great. Um, box office, not good because William Randolph Hearst was trying to, to bury it. And um, eventually, in the 1950s, it would get a reprisal, and uh, they would finally re-release it again uh, when they went, actually, this is, you know, really, really, really great. You know, greatest movie of all time, whatever. Yeah, and, and the funny the funny thing is, uh, after William Randolph Hearst died, like, I think, like, sometime in maybe the 90s or whatever, they actually did show Citizen Kane uh, at San Simeon, which is interesting because it's like, this movie's about the guy. This guy is Kane. This guy is Hearst. And... But I think maybe that's their them kind of putting it his his estate kind of putting it behind them in a way. I don't know. Now we talked about the making of this movie, but what were some elements of this movie that that were so I didn't say they invented them, but they popularized them and just did them so well. I would say the cinematography. Cinematography definitely the makeup is absolutely great. The makeup is great. I mean, they show, like, a period of, like, 50-plus years, and they have, like, an old Orson Welles. And He's he, 25! He looks so, so old, and it's so convincing, and he makes, like, all the people, the young people, and then transforms them into old people very convincingly. That's one great thing. You wouldn't even know that they were young or that they were even the same actor. It, it was done by a band named, uh, I think it's Maurice Seidelman, and he's an apprentice. This is a guy who is just learning the craft, and he does that kind of work. And the thing is, though, the way that the uh, the motion picture industry was is they could not put apprentices' names in you know in, in the movie saying oh. And in fact, uh, Orson Welles in, in in an advertisement in newspaper he said, "I want to give credit to all the the people that were a part of this that whose names may not be in that, including." Uh, Mr. Seidelman, the greatest makeup artist who ever lived. And I was just like, that's, hey, you know. But another one who definitely got credit was uh, Greg Toland, you were saying. Oh, Greg Toland is He's amazing. He's a cinematographer. He did lots of good work. 
there is a lot of good things he did with cinematography. He got his credit right next to to Orson Welles' director credit, so he hold he held him very highly. When you've watched this movie, there are things that that you take for granted. Oh, we've seen that a million times in other movies. That's because this this one did it best, not first, but best uh, at, at the time. It was ahead of its time because of the way it put everything together. Uh, you know, it's like it's like seeing. You know, the dramatic... It's like when people saw Star Wars for the first time. All right, so picture this, all right? I'll, remember a lot of those... Low, when you watch the movie, you'll see there's a lot of low-angle shots, right? Well, what do you see in the shot? The ceiling. And often they would not show that because there literally would not be a ceiling. That's very that's very TV and, and, and theater. But the ceiling is what makes the, the setting seem extremely realistic because now that you see a ceiling, you're like, oh, they're actually in a room somewhere. They had to cut the, the they used floor. Muslin. They used a fabric held tight to be the, the ceiling. If you notice, the ceiling is kind of lower... Than normally is in most rooms, except for except for in uh, in Xanadu's uh, giant, you know, castle. Amazing uh, set. Yes, and 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 some of that set is of course special. He effects. was even trying to make it bigger, but they could they, they they just couldn't. The muslin in the ceiling was the mics, so that's the reason why there's no you don't see any microphones, and you get this real naturalistic sound coming out of the room. You know, it sounds like you're in the room with them, at, you know, hearing all that all that's going on. Um, you'll know even if you notice the scene where Orson is very early on, he has the dancers. You know, he's dancing with the dancers and they're singing a song about how great Charles Foster Kane is. Yeah. That ceiling is a lot lower than you normally would expect, and that's because. They use they reuse some of those sets a couple different times, and they they move things out. And plus, if you were literally drilling into the floor to be able to put cameras down there for the low angle shots, as I just said, then yeah, the they wouldn't really need too much of a ceiling uh, as high as it would be because the camera would be lower, so it would look normal height, probably. And the use of shadow, especially really great, yeah. What's in light? What's not? Especially the library scene. Oh. They have the shadows. Yeah, and and also uh, the way that they used uh, uh, pans and wipes, especially really great. They would go for and also optical printing and matte paintings. Matte paintings. A lot of the effects in this movie are matte paintings because otherwise they'd have to build all that stuff and build Xanadu from a distance. They would never do that. They didn't have CGI. They used models and matte paintings, and models and matte paintings, and and. And that's it. It's 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 got a lot more special effects than you would realize. There's a scene where Charles Foster Kane is having the famous campaign speech, where he's he, you know he's speaking out about Boss Jim Geddes and all this kind of stuff. With one purpose only: to point out and make public the dishonesty, the downright villainy of Boss Jim W. Geddes' political machine. And you see out in the audience, a lot of that audience was painted in there, and there's little cracks. And crevices where the paint isn't, and they moved lights behind it to make it look like motion of people moving around their seats. They used the techniques that were available to make this movie larger than life, and we have movies now that are larger than life because of that. This movie seems like a huge, ginormous, like epic, you know, journey that they go across, but really they, uh, they didn't. They they cut on a lot of things for money because, after all, if you did something that epic, it would not and the be feasible. E the editing, at all. the editing is amazing. Editing too. is very good, snappy. Robert Wise was the was the editor. 
Um, of course, he did West Side Story and Sound of Music. Yeah. He actually got Academy Awards for Best Director and Best Picture for those. We, uh, You've seen Sound of Music. We are going to see Orson Welles. Uh, we'll wrap this up a little bit if we can. This is a hard one to even scratch the surface of. But we're going to see Orson Welles again. In, And this is kind of like, why? It's Transformers the movie from 1986. What? This was his last role. He did the voice of Optimus a Prime? Unicron. Oh. Unicron is a, a planetoid cybernetic organism. So Robert Wise we'll see again in the movies uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the Star Trek the Motion Picture you've already seen in oh, 1971. Cool. 1979, sorry. 19... But to be honest, uh, when we talk about that movie, I'm, I'm definitely going to mention that some of those scenes needed to have been edited down because they do take a long time to get through. Uh, but some people may disagree and think that, that that's what gives the movie the, the, the feeling of, of depth, but uh, there should have been some more editing, <laughs> editing in that movie. But And you said you said there was also a trailer, and you can – well, actually, we're, actually, we're going to put, a, a, put the trailer, a link to the trailer – it's five minutes long, and has and, and it has Orson introducing all the actors that are in it. Um, it's quite a long trailer if you think about the trailers that get put out now. They're two minutes long and very unconventional. It is unconventional, and actually, it shows his personality. Yeah, it shows just as much creative, you know, spice and verve and electricity as the movie does. Um, so, but uh, yeah, go ahead to wrap things up. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about Orson Welles in Citizen Kane. Some might possibly ask what happened after Citizen Kane, which is a okay. not so very talked about subject because he was so well known for Citizen Kane. People forget that he's not just Citizen Kane man. So <laughs> the second movie he made, ooh boy, um, was The Magnificent Ambersons, 1942. I haven't seen uh, it. That was his second movie, uh, the second of the two movie a uh, direct freedom contract that was actually part of two movies. He got two movies with that. Um, but it's a little hard to count this one, unfortunately, because um, let me let me just tell you. Um, it was adapted uh, from the book by uh, Booth Tarkington uh, about okay. a wealthy family uh, falling from its stature due to the industrialization and uh, motor car industry. Um, his finished rough cut of this movie uh, was two hours and 15 minutes, uh, but their test screenings uh, didn't do so well. Uh, part of it being, you know, it's a story with a sad ending uh, originally in uh, World War II, because this is World War II times, 1942. Uh, that was uh, World War II start. Uh, so they didn't want downer stories at all, RKO, uh, in most of the world. So in the middle of the screenings, uh, when those were going on, meanwhile, Orson Welles uh, was sent to Brazil uh, by RKO to make an unfinished anthology as uh, unfinished is called It's All True. Yes, he, he he did it without payment. Yeah, and he took a copy of his cut uh, with him to edit because it still needed, you know, the, the final edit for actually releasing it. But RKO, seeing terrible screenings, betrayed him, cut 40 minutes of his work and burned it and reshot the last section uh, after Major Amberson's death uh, to be much happier. You know, you know, you know. Nowadays, when they do deleted scenes, they might put them on the DVD. Oh, they didn't do that. They back did then. not save them. He, they no. purposefully burned it. What they did is, is they would see it as, well, this is not going in the final movie, so let's get the silver nitrate out of the film, burn it, all the negatives. Exactly. And stuff. That's why um, I think they, that's why it's very difficult to to find the negatives for a lot of these films, so you can do restorations. 
Because a lot of the times they did get sent to to silver mines, yeah. But the plot was recobbled into a mess from what Orson Welles originally had. Uh, the movie had no depth. It was just about, you know, a squabbling family, but it was much more than that in the original. The score was so jumbled that Bernard Herrmann, the composer, asked to be taken out of the credits. It was so ruined. He did the music for Citizen Kane. He did the music for uh, Magnificent Ambersons as well. And um, if you were asking to be taken out of the credits, then they must have mangled it to an extreme. You know, there's a uh, there's something we'll talk about as we go but uh, through these movies. We'll have to watch to see what... It's called the Alan Smithy effect. Have you heard of Alan Smithy? No. Alan Smithy is the name that if a director does not want to be associated with his work... He's like, you guys just screwed me out of this picture. It'll say directed by Alan Smithy. So you can actually look up all the movies that say that they were directed by Alan Smithy. This is not a real person at all. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of funny. At, at least what people are saying is that Wells' cut was definitely on par, even greater than that of Citizen Kane. Um, but now, uh, with the, the RKO mangled version, uh, it's, it's still one of the best movies of all time, you know, the innovative, really long follow shots were, were pretty great, but, um, this is one of the, the holy grails of, uh, lost, uh, film media. Um, there are some people right now searching Brazilian archives, uh, for the cut that Orson Welles took to him for, uh, editing while he was doing It's All True in Brazil. Um, another person... Uh, is reconstructing the lost footage with pencil and paper. So he's, like, drawing and animating how it was going to go based on the scripts that we have. We have all the scripts of the of the cutscenes. Um, so if the cut is found um, when you're listening to this, uh, to this episode, just so you know, I am probably, I am probably interested in seeing it and seeing, uh, comparing it uh, with Citizen Kane and seeing if it is indeed on par or greater than uh, Citizen Kane. But um, after this, his career was a downfall. Um, a lot of, there's a, a bunch of movies that he did do um, still throughout his career. There was, you know, The Trial. There was uh, S for whatever it was called. F for Fake. F for Fake. F for Fake is the name. A lot of people know him uh, for Citizen Kane, but they forget. He's like, oh, you know, I did uh, The Trial as well. You know, I did that. You know, I did uh, F or Fake. You know, uh, I did uh, Lady from Shanghai. You know, see all this stuff. I'm not just Citizen Kane guy, but most people didn't do that. Touch of Evil as I well. I saw Touch of Evil. Do you know Touch of Evil has a uh, a really long, it's called a one or a one-shot. You know, where they filmed the whole thing in one shot. The whole opening of A Touch of Evil is a one-er. It's a one-shot. Which is very innovative. It's hard. His long it's shots. It's hard. Because if you mess it up, you got to go out and start all over again. Yeah. Yeah, so remember I said Alan Smithy with the director thing? Yes. Uh, David Lynch directed uh, 1984's Dune, which we'll probably watch when we get to there. It's it's quite a film. Um, it's a two-hour-long movie theater theatrical cut. When they did it for television... They added some scenes and split it into two parts so they could show it on two nights on TV. And he, uh, David Lynch said, I disavow myself from this version you've done. I don't want my name on it. And so it says it's called the Alan Smithy cut. So, yeah, I know that's a nice little bit of t- of, uh, of, <laughs> of of trivia. But of trivia yeah. you didn't ask for. Yay. So that was Orson Welles's career.
his entire career, basically. He died in 1980-whatsever. What uh, 85. 85. 85. Uh, he had an unfinished movie called The Other Side of the Wind. And they finished that movie for him by, you know, they they see the script and then they, read, uh, they did uh, the scenes as they were. Um, but yeah, that was finished. It's on Netflix right now, actually. Uh, I don't know if I can watch it. It said it was rated R. So. Yeah, I, have, I haven't seen it. But it's it's probably not exactly what his vision was because you can't, how do you do that? So I, I don't know how I feel about unfinished films anyway. But this, this movie, Citizen Kane, was finished and it was, you know, wasn't appreciated, I think, when it came out as much as it is now. But I think after the 50s, it definitely was seen, looked at again as as being very influential uh, with modern cinema. Uh, is it is it one is it the greatest or is it? I think it is one of the greatest. I, I I let your opinion be what it is, William. But I think it's one of the greatest for many different reasons. I don't think it is the greatest. I I, I don't think I could say which one is greatest. I can't do that. All right, so. That was the production of Citizen Kane, and it was really fun to, to talk about it with you. And um, so join us for after the break um, for a, a plot uh, retelling by me of Citizen Kane, and we'll explore you know the plot of Citizen Kane and um, a lot of the, the great story that it has there. That the I feel themes. Like. Yeah, the, and themes, the themes. The themes the, are really the, good, too. The meaning. Also, uh, some other things we can discuss as we go are similarities to uh, real-life uh, characters, uh, real-life people that things were based upon. It's super fascinating. I think sometimes the story behind Citizen Kane uh, is often stranger and more interesting uh, than even the movie sometimes, but I, you know, it's it's truth is stranger than fiction. There's actually a couple of uh, adaptations of of the making of this. There's a movie called RKO two eight one or something like that, and it's about the making of. And there's another um, one called Mank. Mank, which is about Mankiewicz, and and kind of it gives his side of the story, which I think honestly it's probably based off of the Pauline Kale article a lot but in terms of the backstory there's a a ton of resources we're even gonna link the we're linking the trailer already uh i'm gonna link the commentary uh it's a really great one. Oh, roger is it roger ebert's commentary yeah yeah roger ebert uh he is a famous film critic him and uh, gene siskel uh they popularized i'm telling this for you william because you're kind of young they popularized the two thumbs up or two thumbs down you know one thumb up you know the thumbs up thing they popularized uh and honestly i watched them every week they would talk about movies they went to we didn't have the internet uh when i was younger so you could watch that and see what movies would be good to go watch and uh he i disagreed with him on certain elements but by and large i agree with him he uh roger ebert uh did uh movie criticism for the chicago sun i think uh but he's the reason why a lot of us critique movies uh the way we do um he's he's an inspiration um we're kind of doing what he did for so many years and 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 he he popularized it i mean a lot of people like leonard malton and uh schaefer i think it's another guy named uh i can't remember his name it's uh something schaefer but he uh uh they they all did their own reviews everybody everybody does reviews right or critic criticisms of movies uh but he popularized it i think in in you know, everybody knows the two thumbs up, you know, that's so anyway, that's just my little bit of trivia for that. Um, but yeah, and this production 
is uh wells that's at his end har har um so uh we'll catch you for the break and uh we'll go into the plot and um for now um you know i'll say something interesting toodles on the march. Who's that giving his idea of the plot? Why, it's William Weatherford, that man about town, that gadabout, that cad. And all the more an American. (laughs) All the more he's an American. This American man known as William Weatherford is going to read... uh, You've heard of American girl. Now you've heard of American (laughs) man. Now he's going to give give his idea of the plot. And he's going to let you know exactly what this man, Charles Foster Kane's all about. And this crazy movie that came out years ago and still considered an amazing achievement in film history. That's about as good as it's going to get. As you all know, I uh, I was the creator of Susan Kane at Nala. That, that seemed more like a... <laughs> as you know, I was uh, the man who created Citizen Kane. And I'm... This is my Citizen Kane voice. And I, uh... I, uh, I tell you... I tell you, Jed... This is uh, this is exactly what America wants, and what America wants, America gets. Who knows? I could do a good Bane impression. Yeah, you can do a good Bane impression, but... So today we're doing Citizen Kane, <laughs> and I'm about to pull up the baseball field, if you don't mind, Batman. No, you'd be like, welcome, my name is Citizen Bane. <laughs> that's, that's terrible. So, yeah, we, we, last time that we, uh, earlier in the podcast, we were talking about the production, and uh, as I often say, uh, truth is very much stranger than fiction sometimes, and, you know, the story of the making of the movie uh, is often crazier than than the movie's plot and the movie's uh, achievements in and of itself, because there's so much stuff that happened, uh, you know, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, the, uh, the, uh, the controversies, you know, who it was based on. You know, to, tried to shut him down. Yeah. You know, the deal they made with RKO. I mean, it's all very interesting. It's so interesting that they made making of, they made movies about the making of this movie. But that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going we're to talk, talk about the actual movie the actual and movie. the actual character. Yes. Yeah. Another thing that I was going to say is that, you know, it's really exciting that he finally gets to have a sequel. Um, it's called uh, Kane Dynasty. There's two options. One. Kill me and destroy all this, and you don't just have one devil, you have an infinite amount. <laughs> and um, he didn't really get to have much of his time to shine no, from, you know, that's... the end of Loki. So I'm really excited you... for him to get his shine. No, and, you know... not that guy. Did you did you did you think that, that they needed to call the they needed to call it Avengers Citizen Kang? Exactly. Actually, I think there actually was a comic book where they 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 chose that name. But uh, they were trying to be really creative. But anyway, uh, so if you were to sum up this plot and you were to do it in like an hour, how would you start? And take it away. <laughs> All right. I'll begin us off with the, the a summary of the very first scene. It's very famous. Um, so you know it's a different kind of movie when you see this, you know, slow close-up crane shot of the no trespassing sign uh, on a chain link fence. Now, this is very much different from what we usually see, because it's like, you know, it's a close-up, it's got a crane, there's a crane shot, and it's moving upwards slowly. There's a, a little bit of depth with the, the no trespassing sign. Cross dissolves. Some cross dissolves. It's very, from this first shot, you can tell it's a different kind of movie that's 
why I say that because you know you you watch all the movies we've been covering uh, from season one and then you come back to this and then it's just a world's difference. But the fact that it says no trespassing, uh, I've heard some people say that it's almost like it's a it's from you know Kane is kind of saying I don't want you. You know, figuring out who I am. Yeah, and overall, as we figure out from the end of this movie, he's shut himself uh, up in this place. But, so yeah, it's it's a very different kind of movie, and you can also tell throughout this movie that it's just, you know, it's just oozing with... You would definitely know that Orson Welles knows what he's doing from this movie. Yes. He is a, a very skilled uh, guy, and you can see that from his works and um, the things that he, that he creates. Well, this place is abandoned. It's very ominous. The thing is, yes, the monkeys that accompany the shot of, right after the shot of this ominous castle, uh, it kind of lightens the mood a little bit, but overall it's very ominous, very understated, sort of quiet. The music is creepy. You know, it's the kind of like dark uh, castle. We see, you know, different shots of this place from different angles. We see, you know, there's like a fishing wharf thing with like a couple boats. Um, there's like a little shed with a cat on a chain. I think that it, either that's extremely dark or that might be, you know, perspective. Uh, or maybe it's a, a statue on a chain of a cat. But yeah, there is a cat looking thing and there is a chain uh, above it. And it's a, uh, there's a shed thing as well. There's no signs of life. It's very abandoned. It's all very dark gray, which, as you know, it, it it's it's monochrome. So obviously, it's you know gray, but it's well. But the shad the shadows are very and you know and and the thing the thing that I get on this is if you think about it, this is a beginning, but it starts with an end. Exactly. So, uh, as we see, the place is all dark gray and misty. Uh, we get a close-up sort of of this window where a light blinks from it uh, a couple times. Uh, we then see a house amidst snow, only for a speedy pullout, revealing it's a snow globe that mm. we were looking at. We then see a mustache whispering, Rosebud. Rosebud. Then the globe falls out of hand. Uh, then we see the nurse uh, come in, come in the door. Uh, it's shown with the fisheye lens that uh, c- it curves the scene into like a circle. Uh, that's why I call it a fisheye because, you know, it's yeah. a circular thing. But it seems that we're in the snow globe in this shot, which is really interesting, which is like showing the refraction of the snow globe when we're inside it. So the nurse lays the covers uh, on this dead man uh, as the light blinks out of the window once more, uh, making Xanadu in darkness. Well, before you, before you do news on the march, I would say one thing. Spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, there's a man named Raymond who said that he was there when um, when Charles Foster Kane had his, his last word. But in this shot, all you see is the nurse come in. So either that was a mistake or he's lying. He's He could be lying, but he could have over, overheard the nurse talking about the last words. Either way, this is a very, very iconic opening being parodied a ton of times. There was one time I was watching a show and it got parodied and I was like, oh my goodness, why did they throw this in there? But it got parodied. It's the most well-known thing about Citizen Kane is that one scene and some people have said uh, reviewers of the time said that you know okay the rosebud thing is kind of a, a gimmick to get you to to piece together this but man's life but it's very life. mysterious and also very you know kind of dark and somber um sort of as well there's a there's a point to it but i think that, that it becomes a gimmick for them to go rosebud 
dead or alive. Um, so, news on the march! News on the march! Finally, yes. This castle, uh, is revealed, uh, by a narrator to be Xanadu, obviously, which is named after, um, a poem about Kubla Khan, uh, who was a guy who was met by Marco Polo. I think he's related to Genghis Khan, actually, in some it's sort a, of it's, way. He's, he's a, he might be a, chi- a Mongolian or Chinese uh, uh, leader. Yeah. But the first paragraph of this poem is, In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man. So that fits this a lot. As it's called, it's the, the world's largest private pleasure ground. And it's filled with the loot of the world and with the biggest zoo since Noah's Ark. Um, so there is a lot of stuff to this glorious place. It's, it's very pompous. And we also learn about the, the owner of uh, this estate, uh, the owner of the, the biggest property to oneself since the pyramids. America's Kublai Khan, Charles Foster Kane. Uh, he is a, the newspaper tycoon. He is a sponsor of democracy, a potent figure of our century. Uh, he made the first of grocery stores, and he also owns the Earth's third richest gold mine, uh, the Colorado Load. Colorado Load. That's where that's where a lot of that's where a lot of the money I think that that kind of started this off came from. It's it's honestly at its core that the the gold is what really um is is feeding this the the fact that he can afford all this it's stuff it's feeding his life i do agree but yeah that was the character from this first scene so he he dead <laughs> uh, we then see a shot of newspapers piling on top of each other uh, many languages they're being cycled around all announcing his death uh one person uh, we'd also see is um, talking about him being a, a communist. And another, uh, right after, calls him a fascist. Um, but then Citizen Kane himself says that he is ultimately an American. You can't, you can't, you, people want to put labels on the guy. But but uh, I think uh, Charles Kane is saying, only I can label myself. I, only I can say what I really am. And what is an American truly? Is an American, you know... He says he's an American, but is American, you know, full of freedom, you know, courage, integrity, kindness? Or is it more corrupt than it may seem? An American can have, you know, more connotations. Yes, yes, and, and, and to, to different people. And you can be... So it's the American way to, you know, cut down all the trees and, you know, right. turn it all into cities. Oh, wow. Yikes. They also tell you... His whole story, just right up here, which basically, other than, you know, he, he got a gold mine, uh, and he has newspaper tycoon. They explain that uh, he married twice. Uh, his first wife, uh, he divorced. Uh, that wife did die in a car accident. That was Emily. That was Emily Kane. So that's the, the one with the one place where we do know her fate. She's related to the president of the United States. Yeah, the or president's daughter or niece, so my wow, goodness. Wow, wow. And um so he had a second marriage as well and did a hanging out with her. Uh this sparked controversy, which uh stopped his campaign for governor, uh, as they say. And uh after that he tried in vain to keep his newspapers uh in control, uh and his life under control, uh as his business slowly failed. Um, and then he shut himself within Xanadu, and ultimately he died, as we see in the first scene, uh, in in its chambers. Absolutely. News on the march. Yep. 
And and this this whole little scene is very totally different. It is it is totally different, and and it's it's kind very of very surprising. It's a it's a whiplash, but then it comes back to more of what you expect from the rest of the movie because these gentlemen, these these journalist guys, are watching this news on the march thing. How about it, Mr. Walton? How do you like it, boy? Well, 70 years in a man's life. That's a lot to try to get into a newsreel. Mm-hmm. It's a good show, Thompson, but what it needs is an angle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All we saw on that screen was that Charles Foster Kane is dead. I know that. I read the paper. You see, Thompson, it isn't enough to tell us what a man did. You've got to tell us who he was. Reviewing it, approving it uh, for news release. Right, but they, but they want to, like... Uh, one of the guys is his name Thompson. Uh, I think so. Yeah, Thompson. He's kind of he's kind of the catalyst for a lot of this because he said that that word rosebud. What does it mean? And then when one person says, "Oh, it's, it could be a racehorse," which funnily enough, and why he wanted to know what rosebud meant was because uh, he looked at the newspaper. He was like, "Oh, this isn't really good actually because it isn't enough to tell us what a man did. Got to tell us who he was." Um, so they're like, we'll find a way to know who he was. Well, what was his last word? Rosebud. Rosebud. Hmm, if we figure out that, then we'll know, uh, who he was. And then we'll be able to get a better newsreel. Yeah, yeah, let's put this off for a little bit until we can do do the research on this. You know, let's, let's go vi- uh, talk to people that knew him best. Um, that kind of thing. So they're gonna find out, uh, who he was by knowing what his last word meant. By the, so therefore, if they know what his last word means, they know what he means. What what he means as a person. Uh, then we get uh, one of two shots throughout this movie. One one two or three uh, of this model nightclub uh, with a big sign. It says El Rancho, and um, we pan over in between the 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 words El and Rancho, and um, down we pan over uh, over it. And then into uh, the glass roof, which honestly is an impressive shot. They kind of covered the uh, the dissolve with um, a little bit of rain and lightning. And they had miniatures, but who would have ever pulled this off? Greg Tolan would. In a time where you filmed in interiors, like this is things. This is things that people would normally do outside with, like a drone or like I don't know, an abnormally tall crane. But. You know, they didn't film this outside. You mean they nowadays? filmed it in an interior. Yes. Nowadays they would they would do it with CGI. Or they just pan over with a drone. But they didn't have that then. So it's very impressive. It is. It is. And the, and the thing is is that they they probably had part of the uh, of the outside set of the of the sign where it could like pull apart so they could slot it in between cuz it's a big it's a big camera so they they do a lot of the pull apart things in other scenes too like the but who would have ever pulled off an exterior looking shot in an interior uh when there was a time when they were restricted to interiors just amazing they weren't in, they weren't restricted to it it's just that he was like let's do something dramatic and then Greg Tolan goes yeah we can do that what i'm saying is that they couldn't pan over a huge building in an exterior like that but the thing is that I really like about it is that it just gets we watch it and go, oh yeah, you know, because that's 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 modern technique uh, as we use now. We just use it. We just use our, more expensively. We use you know special effects and stuff to do similarly what he does here. And he saves. He also saved uh, money by using uh, matte paintings, which is paintings on glass. Now Star Wars did that. Indiana Jones. Everybody did that in the future. But when they were doing it here. It it just it makes it that much more you know, imposing, uh, especially when you know in some of the outdoor scenes with the with the castle. You know, I, I it's just it's just really 
Uh, it's, it's it's impressive. It, I mean, I'm going to say that word it is a lot. impressive. It's a transition. It's a transition. I, I I like it. It's very. So we're transitioning into uh, this nightclub uh, where we see Susan Alexander, uh, which was also on the sign for being known for this nightclub. Um, so she is glassy eyed, drunk, and in mourning. Uh, so basically, the reporter goes up to her and is trying to interview her, uh, but she shuns him. She's like, "Go away." you people leave me alone minding my own business you mind yours i could just have a little talk with you miss alexander i don't want to ask you get out so they then plan uh with uh, a call in a phone booth uh to see kane's biographical info uh from the thatcher library mr thatcher was his guardian uh which you learn so he would definitely put this in his biography yeah and they also plan to you know after this they'll interview bernstein which was a guy who uh knew kane personally because he was with him in the newspaper uh business um he was kane's manager uh, and then they would attempt to, to interview Susan again, uh, which is basically how this is going to play out. So, we then get to the Thatcher Library, uh, where all the staff of this place are very precious of their archive. The directors of the Thatcher Memorial Library have asked me to remind you again yes. of the conditions under which you may inspect certain portions of Mr. Thatcher's unpublished memoirs. I yes, James. I bring it right in. All I want under to know circumstances. Are direct quotations from his manuscript to be used by you? Well, that's all right. I'm just looking for what. They're keeping it behind an iron safe door, and uh, they're even watching him read the, the biography and make sure that he's on the specific pages. They really care about this guy. You have to stop reading at 4:30 or something. She's like, 4:30. That's it. We're gonna come and stop you. And you're like, okay. And and, only and there's res- a statue in this library, so this guy's pretty important. And the statue is it's very good because the statue is a, a miniature and they are panning down as the other part pans up and they're coming down to uh, a piece that... So instead of building this big gigantic full-size statue, they just do the miniature and they pan down to the other part. So And this is a big room too. I, I just... it's the The sets are really nice and, you know... And also very dark, because as we see, there are shadows upon them when they're in this library room, which is very shadowy, and you would also see these kinds of shadows uh, in, you know, stuff like the Maltese Falcon, you know, very noir-like, uh, where they experimented with these with this darkness. Well, a lot of the noir stuff, you know, uh, Citizen Kane kind of was heading that direction with with their, you know, with, with shadow and light. And the thing is that Greg Tolan did not like the... The filming style that was done in the 30s, where every, although although lighting is very flat, uh, you know they they had to illuminate it a lot for their cameras. Yes, thank you. Because thank the you cameras for that. needed a ton of light uh, at the time. Nowadays we have digital, so it doesn't super matter. Well, uh, you know you have to do some things, but strangely enough, uh, I wonder how you're going to feel when we go back to I guess 1933, 34. For season two of, of our podcast, because you're going to start seeing that flat light again and go, wow, you're probably you're really going to tell a difference. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, there is a big difference between, you know, the, the, the stuff now and Citizen Kane. That's why we call it, you know, the greatest of all time is because it was distinct from most other movies of its kind. Well, a lot of the techniques, though, that you see in this, you also do see in, in, in Greg Tolan's earlier films. So he was experimenting with this before he met Orson Welles, 
which I think is he was like, I want to work with him because he's we're, we're going to be able to do some good stuff. Yeah, probably like some stagecoach stuff or whatever. But overall, fantastic movie. 9.5 on the fantastic go meter i guess we have a meter now <laughs> yes we do it's it's canon the cinematic fantastic meter official copyrighted the fantastico meter yeah i love anyway it. so as he reads the words i first encountered kane in 1817 we're transported to a blizzard-like land of snow and with a boy playing war uh as the union uh as we pan inside to the parents uh inside this house uh signing a document to give their son away to be raised uh, by Thatcher, by the it's, bank. It sounds kind of it sounds kind of cold if you think about it. So they're signing a document to give their son away uh, to be raised by Thatcher. The father doesn't want uh doesn't want to. Uh, he doesn't really understand why the bank has to have him. Honestly, me too, buddy. Uh, but the mom uh gives him up very easily. Uh, being the sole owner of the third richest gold mine, uh, the father can't do anything. Uh, because she owns the Colorado load. So, uh, so she ignores him and signs him up anyway. Uh, here's demonstrated the deep focus tech. You can see him playing, uh, through the window, uh, in as much detail as you can see them, uh, signing the document, uh, with the, the, also the camera is inside the table, so they had to part the table, by the way. Exactly. That's, that's what I was referring to earlier. So. I love those little tricks. She seems to care nothing for him. Uh, is the overall feeling you get versus, you know, the father actually cares for his well-being. Uh, but she seems to only care for the money, uh, basically. Um, so Kane, uh, he goes to meet uh, Mr. Thatcher because she goes, Hey, you know, want me meet Mr. Thatcher? He's going to take care of you, buddy. Uh, you're going on a train. And the father's trying to hype him up because, you know, you're going on a train to go somewhere cool. And he's like, yeah, sort of, I guess. But he is sus of uh, Mr. Thatcher. Uh, but Miss Kane... Uh, Mrs. Kane uh, seems to gaslight him into disliking his father because he's, uh, he's saying the word, uh, I'll give you a thrashing if you don't or whatever. So it's sort of confusing. There's a, there's... Is, it, is the father the bad one or the mother the bad one? It's hard to tell. That's the interesting thing. There's I wrote qu- this from the mother being bad, but as you're saying, you know, the father could be the bad one That's as well. the twist. That's the twist on that is that some people have, have thought... That it's not that she was cold; it's that she she was she had to be cold, or she would never let him go. She would be like, "I have to let him go for his for his. He's going to have a better life, not here, but with Mister Thatcher. He's going to be able to be a great man. And if he's here, uh, you know, his dad is gonna is gonna get his hands but on him. But the dad is like, uh, you know, Kane is like struggling sort of against Mister Thatcher. He hits him with his sled, and he's like, "No, boy, don't do that, or I'm going to give you a thrashing." And then that's where the mother goes, he's, he's going to give you a thrashing, so he's bad. And so that's very, you know, he's, uh, she's the one that goes up to him and says, well, he's a bad person. So it's like, who is truly the bad person? You're Jim! I'm sorry, Mr. Thatcher. What that kid needs is a good thrashing. That's what you think, is it, Jim? Yes. That's why he's going to be brought up where you can't get at him. That's interesting. So the old sled, he abandons his sled uh, as he gets pulled out of this uh, house. Uh, It gets abandoned for a Christmas sled, which is given to him by Thatcher. Uh, There's also good use of height dominance uh, as well because he's just, like, shown from a low angle uh, giving him this Christmas sled. And he's like, here, it's Christmas time. Sort of a coldish way of doing it. Uh, 
jumping forward uh, to the to the Happy New Year uh, by him saying, you know, Merry Christmas, and then it transitions to and a Happy New Year. Uh, so that's a transition to the Happy New Year, which I find really, really clever. The the editing is is nice. Thank you to Ro- Robert Wise for that editing. Yes, but this is uh, about his twenty fifth birthday. So this is a, like a uh, a very you know like fifteen year fifteen year uh, transition. And also that's also how old Orson Welles was when he made this movie. Interesting. Uh, so Kane is revealing to Thatcher. Uh, through a letter that he wants to disregard the the gold mines and oil rigs. As well as the assumption by you of full responsibility for the world's sixth largest private fortune. Have you got that? The world's sixth largest private fortune. Yes. Charles, I don't think you quite realize the full importance of the position you are to occupy in the world. I am therefore enclosing for your consideration a complete list of your holdings extensively cross-indexed. Uh, for the newspaper, uh, because that'll be fun. So he's given inheritance It'll be fun to, to run a newspaper. And, it'll and, be uh, fun to run a newspaper. A little newspaper. I understand we acquired in a foreclosure proceeding. Please don't sell it. I'm coming back to America to take charge. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. And uh, he's given all this inheritance to all the, all the bank and whatever and his own business. But he's like, you know what? Uh, I just want the newspaper. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, and Thatcher, he says, I'd be fun to run a newspaper, and he looks at us. So a little bit of a fourth wall break there. So he doesn't really seem to run it well overall. He's, uh, as you know, he's outing capitalist corruption uh, of his and Thatcher's company uh, on the front pages, as we see. And this is called uh, yellow journalism. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper? I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charles, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof of this... Armada's off the Jersey Hello, coast. Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Bernstein. Can you prove it isn't? This just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just How are you doing, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. So basically, he cares about the people, but is so rich losing money doesn't really matter to him for this yellow journalism. Charles, I think I should remind you of a fact that you seem to have forgotten. Yes. That you are yourself one of the largest individual stockholders in the public transit company. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit, preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time. On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it, you see. I have money and property. If I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged, maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, and that yes. Would money be too and property. Bad. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Oh, tell me... Honestly, my boy, don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. 
You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. Yeah, and, and the other the other part of that is he's exposing corruption, but a lot of these, yeah, you said investors, but a lot of these people, uh, including, That, including Thatcher, are kind of the subject of his corruption uh him exposing the corruptions and thatcher's like uh these are the same people that kind of made or making you who you are if you think about it so you're kind of biting the hand that feeds you so it's like you gotta stop man um so cut to 1929 uh which for those who don't know is the the stock market crash interestingly enough uh where kane he's way older uh seeming at least, and um, he's relinquishing most of the Inquirer uh, to Thatcher & Co. Uh, because he ran out of cash for those sub-companies, so he's selling the sub-companies uh, back to Thatcher & Co., interestingly enough. Basically, uh, it seems from this moment that uh, Kane doesn't really like being rich anymore from relinquishing those sub-companies, I guess. I don't know. So, the reporter has then exited the Thatcher Library and is now interviewing uh, Bernstein uh, about the start of the newspaper, and of Kane meeting his first wife, which is basically the events that play out. Um, he also mentions his own first love, uh, which is a, a maiden in uh, all white with a parasol. A fellow remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. And as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. And I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. So now we're at the Inquirer, uh, back in the past, where Kane, uh, with no plans, he takes his place as head of the newspaper. Uh, it gets very chaotic when Kane is literally moving in to the Inquirer. And the, the previous owner, he's just like, oh, to, to comedic effect. Kind of funny, yeah. And um, so he's just like, he has no plans on what he was ever going to do, so he's just going to move in. He's also eating uh, while he's also explaining that he's trying to imitate the Chronicle by warping household, housewife gossip into front page news 24 hours a day is his basic ideas. It's very comparable uh, to Orson Welles making his first movie and Kane's newness and fun-seeking about this newspaper business. There's a lot of parallels with that, I wanted to know. Also, I was thinking, you said 24 hours, I kept thinking, this is CNN. This is CNN. Because <laughs> the, they were the first 24-hour news network uh, that came about in the 80s and uh, cable cable news. But yeah, the guy, the guy who previously owned this is just huffing like a toad at his management ideas, man. He's just like, oh, but, the, but what uh, What on earth are you doing? Um, so later, uh, he shows Leland and Bernstein his uh, declaration of principles, uh, where he promises to be honest and to side with the people, basically. Got it all written out, declaration of principles. You don't want to make any promises, Mr. Kane. You don't want to keep. These will be kept. I'll provide the people of this city with a daily paper that will tell all the news honestly. I will also provide... That's the second sentence you've started with I. People are going to know who's responsible. And they're going to get the truth in the Inquirer, quickly and simply and entertainingly, and no special interests are going to be allowed to interfere with that truth. I'll also provide them with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and as human beings. Um, he's also uh, putting this on the front page 
um, where we see with shots of stacks and stacks and stacks of newspapers his declaration that he uh, personally will uh, provide them all of this. And there's another there's another newspaper that is the their rival, which is the Chronicle. The Chronicle, yeah. Um, so the next scene we see they're uh, they're doing well off the Inquirer. Uh, we also get a funny scene explaining, you know, the Chronicle staff, you know. Uh, it took 20 years to amass. Kane gets them on his own company in six years. How funny is that? It's just like they abandoned uh, the Chronicle fast uh, when he was gaining traction. And the transitions are really cool because it goes from photo to, you know, for them. Very snappy dialogue overall. Very snappy transitions. This is actually, this this whole part from him going into getting the, getting the Inquirer till now is my favorite parts of the movie because this is his good days. Well, yeah, but but the, uh, I like Orson Welles watching him just with the with the brightness in his eyes, and he's just uh, as an actor, and he's just being very snappy with his dialogue, and 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 you're watching him going, this is this really is a wonder, you know, the, this genius wonder boy filmmaker. You can see, you know, his the excellence. His, yeah, and 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 it's it's this is this has never been done. You know, giving him all, giving some a director this much power, and and it really shows because he's able to get his true creative vision out there, and it's a shame that he was never able to do that ever again. Yeah, but fantastic movie. I would say, yeah, and, and you know what? Honestly, there are some people out there that you know get pretty much the the vision they want out there, and they can say, "I've made great films." Susan Cain being the greatest that that he's uh, that Orson Welles has ever done, I would say. You know what a life. I mean, you know the greatest movie ever made. I made. That's a very uh, a very good kind of uh, thing you can say about your life. Except when it sucks up your entire life, and you're like, "Hey, I made you know the trial," but they know you for Citizen Kane. It's like, "Oh, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane." When you interview him, is like, "No, I I have this stuff. You know, come see this stuff too." Yeah. What about the great, you know, about the, the the Ambersons, and and they just massacred that, and and you know, so honestly, I think it kind of turned him off to Hollywood a great deal. He uh, there's a, there's a line that he said later in his life. He said, you know that. He doesn't think he's really cut out for Hollywood because it's 98% hustle and 2% filmmaking. Was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the staff are all uh, having a party. Uh, they're celebrating 684,000 papers. 684,132! Right. Which is pretty funny. They're having a party. It also has very many ice sculptures, which is something you note about. Uh, they're all special. So he's blown a lot of money on this, and 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 a lot of statues. He's he's blown money on diamonds and statues too, man. All sorts of stuff. And so he's like chatting with them about, you know, uh, he was gonna have a vacation uh, in the plan, but he wasn't gonna. And they're like, oh, don't don't bring back all those statues and whatever. Um, then he brings out a whole marching band, and there's dozens of woman dancers, showgirls. And he dances with them as they all sing a song all about him. Everyone is very amused, laughing, and singing along. Uh, Leland is uh, sus of the Chronicle newcomers, however, but Bernstein uh, reassures them. So he's just like, not only do I have all this stuff, I'm going to selfishly you know, make them sing a song all about me. This is Jedediah Leland. Who, who is Leland to, to Kane? Um, they're sort of, you know, the guys that they worked with, uh, in the newspaper. I think he's, I think he's the best friend. He's, he's Kane's best friend. He's the only one, I think, that sees through his, his, his nonsense. 
It kind of goes, you know, because everybody else, including Bernstein, is like, hey, happy, 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 joy, joy. And he's like, yeah, but I wonder, are are these guys going to, you know, uh, be loyal to the Chronicle way of doing things, or are they going to do it the way that Charles Yeah, wants but this to? is a high point of this movie, and, you know, very sort of cathartic, but also sort of concerning, because, you know, they're singing a song all about how great he is. Um, anyway, next scene, Leland is sorting through the thousands of statues that he bought on vacation in Europe, and they, it just, it fills the entire room. Uh, when Bernstein, he comes in, uh, he sort of bumps the statue a little bit, which is sort of funny, um, but, uh, Bernstein comes in and tells him that Kane, uh, again, being on vacation, uh, has bought the world's biggest diamond for, as we discern when Kane arrives back to New York, and, uh, everyone's trying to throw him a surprise welcoming, uh, party, uh, he flusteredly announces that he has to leave for the White House to marry the president's niece. Emily, uh, Monroe Norton. Exactly. So he has bought the world's biggest diamond, uh, so that he can propose to, uh, the niece, and then marry her. Over the top much, but yeah, Kane's over the top. Like, my goodness. So so there's the wedding that happens, and they're all, like, you know, clustered about. We do see some shots of this uh, in the, the newspaper on the March segment as well, because after all, that's the same events. So Bernstein, uh, then, uh, after this all being done, uh, redirects the reporter to interview uh, Mr. Leland. Uh, he's theorizing that Rosebud was probably something lost. He says, he says Rosebud is probably not Emily Kane, his first wife. Uh, so he goes to Leland. Leland is at this, you know, retirement home. Um, he also, funnily enough, he wants to sneak cigars past the doctors, which becomes a little bit. Mr. Leland, you were uh, going to you say something about to Rosebud. Have a good cigar, do you? I've got a young physician here who thinks I'm going to give up smoking. He also, uh, what we get from Bernstein is that Leland didn't re- really agree with Kane about the Spanish-American War, so they had uh, some things about that. I think, like, through the newspapers he caused it, that applies back to Hearst, because I think Hearst sort of did that with his newspaper, and so they're like, parallels. There's that famous line that I think they took from Hearst or something where he says, uh, you give me the prose poems, I'll give you the war. Exactly. Anyway, Leland is at this retirement home. Uh, he's very old, uh, as well as Bernstein. They're both very old people. So we start uh, from Leland a little forward from where we left off uh, with a montage uh, of the married couple as they're growing farther and farther apart. The breakfast table scene. Yes, they're growing farther and farther apart as Kane spends most of all of his day at work, increasingly so. And she's just like wondering, why are you staying all this time? And um, also, finally enough, the table is getting longer and longer as well. So if you didn't see that, uh, there's definitely a big, with this cool-looking montage where they whip around and it shows the next part really, really cool. You can obviously see that they're growing apart, uh, both in table uh, and both in attitude. As um, toward the end of this montage, uh, they argue about uh, Kane's attack on the president uh, in the newspaper. And um, also, secondarily, about uh, Bernstein coming to see their son uh, in the nursery for, like, all day, basically. And she's like, why was he Why was he in there while with my son and stuff? So Kane, he's growing colder and colder uh, as the montage goes on, and they end up separated by the newspaper. He's suddenly grown very, very cold. People will think what I tell them to think. But the thing is, funnily enough, he's reading his own company while uh, the wife is reading the Chronicle, which is very funny. As well. (laughs) So they're separated by a newspaper, have a really, really long table, and 
Also, Kane is just colder and colder and colder. Back at the hospital, uh, Leland has this thing where he says that... That's all he really wanted out of life was love. That's Charlie's story, how he lost it. You see, he just didn't have any to give. Oh, he loved Charlie Kane, of course. <laughs> Very dearly. And his mother, I guess he always loved her. That That leads over to talk about second wife. Yes, but... So basically, yeah, that ended with a divorce, basically, because they, they, they just wouldn't get along. Um, so yeah, as we were saying, we get to Kane meeting his second wife, uh, on the wet sidewalk. Uh, she's giggling at Kane, uh, getting splashed with mud from the cars, uh, passing by. Uh, she then invites him into her home, uh, to clean, uh, to clean his suit off. Uh, there's a good shot of the camera walking through the door just as it's reopened. Which is really cool. And she's got a she's got a toothache or something? Yes, but that doesn't really do too much for the scene as well. So it's just sort of something random. She doesn't know uh, who he is. Like, like he, she doesn't know that he's the most wealthiest man in America. Yeah, so they're just absolutely amusing each other to distract Susan from the toothache. Um, you know, with shadow puppets. And um, I think that's one of the only things shown, though. But uh, Kane reveals that he was uh, going to a Manhattan warehouse... Uh, to find his hold-up childhood belongings, actually. So that's where he was about to go. Um, she also reveals to Kane that she wanted to be a singer, uh, and her mom wanted to be an opera singer specifically, uh, but she wasn't cut out for it. Uh, she's not even really cut out for it at all. Um, so he proposes, you know, uh, that she sing and uh, play piano in the parlor for him uh, to, to hear what her voice is like. Because she's like, he's like, you know, nonsense. You're not a bad singer. Show me what you got. And it's pretty, it's pretty nice. It's pretty admirable. She could probably, like, I don't know, do, do some things. But it's like, she's pretty good, but not opera singer good. And that's as we'll see through the course of the movie. So he's clapping at her performance. But transitioning via clapping, Kane is campaigning for governor. Uh, he's announced as the fighting liberal uh, before using this statement. Uh, to then transition to the famous scene uh, where Kane is standing behind a huge poster of himself as he's making a speech to thousands. Uh, his plan is to rid the world of Boss Jim Gettys. And that's based off of a real, a real guy, to you know, a Tammany uh, from Tammany Hall. But he has the ultimate confidence of his election, and all the people love him. Yes, and uh, but here's the question: I don't think he's divorced from Emily Kane yet. That's why. That's why there's a. But it does end in divorce. That's why I was saying. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's still he's still married even while he's. Uh, yeah, his wife and son are watching as as the the speech is going on. And the and the effects are really cool too about how they make it look like there's thousands of people. We also get a clip of him, you know, uh, being all for the working class and you know being that citizen uh, in the Citizen Kane. The working man, the working man, and the slum child. No, they can expect my best efforts in their interests. The decent, ordinary citizens know that I'll do everything in my power to protect the underprivileged, the underpaid, and the underfed. Unfortunately, they drive off in a taxi uh, after the speech. Um, they're headed for Susan's house. See, name specifically the ad address. Uh, this is all after the speech, and he's just concerned. He's like, how on earth do you know the address of Susan? Uh, she's like, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna drive to this place, and you're either coming with me or not. So, they all do. So, Kane comes with her, uh, as Jim Geddes, 
uh, is actually in the house uh, with Susan, uh, and they're all in the house to confess to him. She's cheating on his wife. Yeah, she confesses to him that uh, she does, in fact, know him, uh, and they do have a relationship. And so, basically, Jim Geddes is blackmailing Kane because, uh, after all, he just made a speech about how much he wants to rid the world of him. So he's like, nope. He's forcing Kane to step down from his campaign or else hold, you know, cause a controversy. And as we know, that's what happens. Kane is yelling down the stairs, I'm Charles Foster Kane! I'm no cheap, crooked politician trying to save himself from the consequences of his crimes! Dennis! I'm going to send you to Sing Sing! Sing Sing Geddes! As Jim Geddes is just walking away, it's a very dramatic scene. And and also, the interesting thing is he actually, Wells gave himself over to this scene so much in his acting that he hurt his, his ankle or his leg or something, broke his leg or something. It's a very dramatic scene because this is the turning point uh, for Kane. Well, he, he, he directed from a wheelchair is what I was trying to say. That's interesting, yes, indeed. But he it's a turning point for this movie uh, as, this, uh, as the controversy is out in the news. The Inquirer posting fraud at polls while defeatedly pulling down their campaign banners and decorations. That's all they could do. They were just like... This happened to Hearst, too, with Marion Davies. Everyone else was at, you know, controversy and stuff while he either had, you know fraud at polls or i won so he had to put fraud at polls which is sort of funny but sad because he has to he lies with his newspaper uh which is something that again hearst does so drunk leland uh then accuses kane about owning the people to me you talk about the people as though you own them so they belong to you goodness as long as i can remember you've talked about Giving the people their rights, as if you can make them a present of liberty, as a reward for services rendered. Jed. Remember the working man? I'll get drunk too, Jedediah. It'll do any good. I won't do any good. Besides, you never get drunk. You used to write an awful lot about the working man. Oh, go on He's turning into something called organized labor. You're not going to like that one little bit when you find out it means that your working man expects something as his right, not as your gift. Uh, he also says that he'll sail to a desert island and lord over the monkeys. I love it. I love that line, yeah. Which is kind of funny because of what... Yeah, where have we seen monkeys before? Xanadu. Exactly. So basically he is lording over a desert island uh, and lording over the monkeys which is very, very interesting. That's why the monkeys were there. I, I would also like to point out one other thing, you know, about the quote-unquote pleasure-pleasure palace that uh, Xanadu is based after is San Simeon. Uh, there's actually a line where somebody said that they were driving up to San Simeon and they were driving for like 30 minutes before they actually reached San Simeon. And it was because it's, it's, it's almost like it is a desert island. I mean, it's not a desert, but it's like it's like in the middle of nowhere. It's very, very isolated, I guess is the word I'm saying. Yeah, who knows? Actually, an interesting thing is you said San Simeon. Yes. But I also get, you know, that there's an actual castle called Hearst Castle, which I thought was his castle, and you're like San Simeon, so that sort of confused me. So it's Hearst Castle, uh, known formally as La Cuesta and Cantata. So I'm like, well, does he have 
uh, two castles? No, San, I don't know, but San Simeon is the official name of the whole area. Um, you know, from you know, from the zoo to everything else, the castle is it's called, called Hearst Hearst Ca- Castle. Castle. Yeah. Thank you for that information. So, no problem. <laughs> but since Kane is very obstinate, sort of on this matter, uh, he gives a toast to toast Jedediah to love on my terms. Those are the only terms anybody ever knows. His own. Just for, boom, Kane. Mary Singer. A uh, quote singer. Mary's quote singer, uh, as he is then That's marrying... Burn. That's such a burn. He has divorced his first wife, and now uh, Susan Alexander is his wife. Uh, Kane is also going to have Susan uh, become an opera star. Uh, that's his plan for uh, this. A funny moment happens where he says building an opera house wouldn't be necessary at all uh, before there's a title card of Kane Builds Opera House. <laughs> wow. Well, also, also another thing too. This Susan Alexander's is based off of uh, Hearst's relationship with Marion Davies, but the thing is, Marion Davies actually is talented. She actually, you know, she's not a singer; she's an actress, and she actually does have talent. But Susan Alexander has some fine singing, definitely. Eh. It's, it's her accent sort of gets in the way, but it is very, it's very fine singing. Just ask her singing coach, okay? Ask her singing coach. So she's getting a costume put on uh, while being yelled at uh, her Italian uh, music coach. There's a big zoom out of everyone getting her ready for the show. So there's this, it's a very chaotic scene played out very fast. Uh, Everyone's getting ready for the show in the opera. Um, So the curtain rises and so does the camera. As you said before, they had to transition to a miniature to make this extended, very cool, you know, pan up shot of the guys you know holding their noses and saying it was a stinker yeah and i i it's it's very cool so kane arrives at the inquirer while the staff tell him about their enthusiastic review of her terrible performance uh but (laughs) but the review isn't ready yet because leland fell asleep drunk writing the last part so basically kane decides to finish leland's review for him and since leland hadn't written too positively at this moment he used this uh, review to angrily trash uh, her his wife's very existence, basically. Oh, uh, Leland says that Susan is a pretty but hopelessly incompetent amateur. Yeah, he, there wasn't very too much, you know, mean at that point, but he just absolutely trashes her in this. Oh, yeah. He also fires Leland uh, as well, basically. So this is where Leland finishes his story uh, because uh, he has to go. Um, the reporter then goes to interview Susan herself about that fateful day in the opera. My voice. What do you suppose he built that opera house for? I didn't want it. I didn't want to sing. It was his idea. Everything was his idea. Except my leaving him. So Kane comes in the room as the Italian tutor is attempting to perfect her singing, uh, like a couple days before the performance, probably. And uh, trying to bring it out of her nose uh, to where she's singing, you know, very operatically. She's she's a uh, nasal. It's a, he's trying to say she's singing very nasally, and you, and you this have to guy you has, have to sing with your throat, not with your nose. Yeah, uh, this guy has literally no faith in her, really. Uh, but Kane is obstinate to continue the lesson regardless. So now we get onto the repeated shot of her getting ready for the opera. It has some slight variation. Um, but it's showing that uh, we were still overlapping to where we previously were. Uh, but it was from the opposite side uh, of the stage, actually, I think. Uh, and it was extended into the actual performance. 
So we see the actual performance in this scene, and Kane is just watching sternly while everyone else is falling asleep. I think there's a guy shredding uh, the newspaper. That, that That's Leland. Yeah, basically, she wasn't made for opera. They are falling asleep for this. But just look at the sadness in her eyes as she's trying to be on key, and she knows she's not. Yeah, I mean, she could probably survive plays possibly kind of easily, uh, just not opera. Because, you know, you need you need a very good voice for that. So the climax hits with no power. And it ends with medium clapping, sort of. There's some clapping, but... It's They're being polite. Very polite. We gotta clap anyway. But yeah. Kane, he stands up. He claps very hard. He's fuming. It gets parried and memed very a lot. Very famous clapping scene. He's just like... I don't understand why she's not good. She is good. And he's just like furiously, a furious standing ovation. And he's also fuming at the reception as, as well because nobody cheered, you know? He's just like, this woman will be good. And it's just sort of an abusive relationship as well as we'll see. Uh, Susan, uh, next scene is feeling betrayed at Leland's review. Stop telling me he's your friend. Friend don't write that kind of review. All these other papers panning me, I could expect that. But for the inquiry to run a thing like that, spoiling my whole debut! Um, so Kane also opens a letter from Leland, uh, that Leland sent him when he got fired, uh, to see that he sent them the Declaration of Principles all the way from previously the early part of the movie. He saved it just for the occasion. It's kind of a burn because he's like, I'm reminding you that you lost... You've lost something. You've lost something, definitely. But Kane, he crumples it. Uh, he calls it an antique. Uh, Susan also declares, you know, I'm not going to sing anymore. But Kane is selfishly forcing her to do performance after performance after performance, uh, overshadowing her in this scene made especially noticeable uh, for the Dark Shadows, which is very interesting. Uh, then comes the montage, obviously, ever performing it eight more times at least. There's chaotic music as it's being overlaid in a dissonant pattern. And it's just like, you know, this is not a good thing. She is being, you know, dragged across the floor multiple times, basically. There's also newspapers overlaid of her uh, being absolutely terrible and, you know, nobody likes her. She's getting savaged, bro. Yes. Uh, after that, we get a very dark shot of uh, breathing blankets, a spoon in a cup uh, on a nightstand beside, and of Kane breaking down the door to then get Susan to a hospital uh, as she is in bed. So yeah, this is a very abusive relationship because he's literally dragging her across the floor to the point that she literally wanted to uh, addendum Wardis man. Yes. He says he can't imagine why she came to make such a foolish mistake. Uh, there's some quiet music playing as Kane is sitting in darkness, uh, waiting for the hospital, staring at Susan's uh, sweaty face. Uh, fortunately, she wakes up, uh, explains she doesn't want to sing anymore. I couldn't make you see how I felt, Charlie, but I couldn't go through with the singing again. You don't know what it means to know that people are... that a whole audience just doesn't want you. That's when you've got to fight him. All right. You won't have to fight him anymore. It's their loss. But she's like, you know, you didn't listen, though. Um, but he's like, you know what, I'll listen now. Um, but 
it's honestly not enough. No, it's too little too late, man. We transition well into time uh, where Kane is much older, probably balding a little bit. Susan is putting together a puzzle in this hugely exaggerated interior of Xanadu. Uh, the fireplace roof is taller than he is, which is very exaggerated. The fireplace is usually one of the smallest things in the house, actually. So, my goodness. Anyway, Kane is very cold towards Susan. She dreams of nightclubs free in New York, but he keeps her trapped, sort of like a personal bird, kept all to himself to sing uh, in a lonely cage. So he's holed himself up in this his aloof dreariness, and he's forcing Susan to do the same. Um, we transition many other years uh, with a puzzle montage of her doing puzzle after puzzle after puzzle until Kane is very elderly. That's a, uh, that's a Marion Davies thing. She loved uh, puzzles. Yes, but this is not to great effect, though. So Kane, he's very elderly. He's white and balding. As we were saying, the makeup is impressive. Oh, it is. Because this dude goes from a young dude. He's still a young dude. All the way to, like, I don't know, 65, 75, 85. My goodness. Really old. And and it was done by a journeyman. This is like somebody who's just training to do the effects. That's one of the things you could say this was absolutely fantastic for the film, the makeup. It's very underappreciated, but this dude goes from being very young to very old. It was underappreciated because uh, a, a a journeyman, by lo- by the law of the acting Doesn't get world, credited. No, but he did credit him. Uh, Orson Welles said, he want, like I said earlier in the podcast, he said he wanted to thank everybody, including the greatest uh, makeup man in the world, and, and Siderman. Siderman? Yeah. Um, so... We get to the point where Kane is elderly, as I said. Uh, he says they're having a picnic. No one is to tell him no. Uh, so there's a line of limousines uh, where guests are dancing uh, to a black band. D- uh, jazz. Jazz band. He can get he can get any any band he wants. Yeah, sort of jazzy. Um, so there's people dancing at this picnic to the music and stuff, and they're sort of camped out uh, somewhere. Uh, uh, they're, they're in the Everglades. They're in the Everglades of Florida, yes. And, and they have a pig roasting on a spit. Yes, they do. But remember when I said, all the way in the Son of Kong episode, that the island mat they had, you know, with the pterodactyls going across, uh, ended up in this movie? Yeah. Notice the animated pterodactyls in this shot. It's this mat of the picnic. Yep. Where you can see flying pterodactyls in the background. It's sort of funny, though. You're just like, oh, they're, I didn't know they're pterodactyls now. But it was because they reused the mat. So. Yep, the, you you heard it. I mean, uh, C- Citizen Kane and King Kong are in the same uh, same metaverse. Citizen Kong. <laughs> Citizen Kong. So anyway, we then get into a tent uh, as Susan is confronting Kane on his trying to make her happy so that he could be happy. Whatever I do, I do because I love you. You don't love me. You want me to love you? Sure. I'm Charles Foster Kane. Whatever you want, just name it and it's yours. But you gotta love me. Kane then, at this statement, smacks her. This is absolutely an abusive relationship. Uh, at the same time, uh, a woman in the background starts wailing after this, and a band stops for... I, I don't know if this is a related or unrelated reason, but it also, since the music stops and there's wailing, it shows that there is a, a dramatic shift. This guy is just cold. He even slaps his own wife, man. So we then cut back all the way to Xanadu, uh, where Kane is attempting in vain to stop Susan from packing up and leaving. He promises to stop giving what he thinks other people want instead of what they actually want. He's like, no, no, I'll be good this time. For reals. 
Uh, but she reveals that he's still acting selfishly uh, from this statement um, because he still wants him to, uh, her to love him uh, before leaving through several doors. So now that Susan has finished her story by saying that it didn't really matter to me actually at all, uh, I just lost all my money, uh, she's just like, you know, it didn't really matter at all I left this rich dude. I just, you know, lost all the money, but there was no, not very much loss. So the reporter then goes to Xanadu uh, for the news people to catalog all the cane owned in this place with pictures and lists before junking it or putting it in a museum. Uh, so at Xanadu, the final interview is with Raymond the butler, uh, who is sure he knows what Rosebud is. Rosebud? I tell you about Rosebud. How much is it worth to you? thousand dollars? Rosebud? Yes. Well, like I tell you, the old man acted kind of funny sometimes, but... Uh, but I know how to handle him. Like the time his wife left. Then comes the infamous bird. In his transition to his reveal, they put the bird in to make sure that people wouldn't fall asleep, or if they were fall asleep to wake him up. It definitely jump scared me. So, who knows, maybe your bilingual girlfriend also got jump scared as well. Uh, the butler, uh, he then sees Kane finally turn around right after her leaving, and proceed to trash her room that he was just in uh, before stopping himself and throwing the snowboard. This is a very dramatic moment. He's just a long take of just absolutely trashing the place. I think there were four takes, actually, but he went hard in this moment, Orson Welles did. He buried himself in this character, and he's just chucking everything, tearing everything down. It's very dramatic. He cut his hand in this he scene. He cut his hand in this scene. And and actually later on, you know, any scenes that he's in that they filmed him, you know, when he was an old man, his ha- other hand is hidden. He then looks at this snow globe. Rosebud. He says, uh, before walking between the concerned maids and butlers out of this room. Also by an infinite mirror looking thing. Uh, caused due to reflecting back at itself. It's an amazing shot. It's an amazing shot showing his all of his selves. It can be interpreted as his uh, all of his possible selves in the timeline all converging, or like something like that. There's many interpretations. It's a multiverse of his own madness. What do you know about the multiverse? Exactly. The butler supposes that Rosebud is the snow globe, since he said Rosebud right after the snow globe while looking at the snow globe. That's close, but not exactly it is, we'll tell. The people, they're cataloging among a sea of statues and memorabilia. Uh, It's sort of be looking like the Indiana Jones uh, final scene with all of the crates and stuff. Uh, That's a good comparison. It's an amazing shot if you think about it, you know. We also have this sort of pan shot where they're examining this stuff. They note that they see the trophy uh, from Kane's welcoming party all the way back that he didn't accept in order to get married with his first wife. Uh, Also, the $2 stove his mom had absolute poverty uh as revealed so they also have no concern over whatever it meant they just cataloged it and um it seems that rosebud wasn't found um by the people while they're they've cataloged everything and they're like well uh we didn't find rosebud what rosebud actually meant the reporter also gives a final line about this being uh, a jigsaw uh puzzle that you can never really sum up a man in a jigsaw what have you been doing all this time Playing with a jigsaw puzzle? If you could have found out what that rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything. No, I don't think so. No. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. 
I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece. And as they leave, we get to this final scene. It's also very famous. Uh, a big slow pan over all the boxes that was his entire life. All his life. All the boxes. The loot of the world. The loot of the world. Nearly stopping at the back uh, of the room. Uh, this is a very epic shot, by the way. It's it's very epic. There's just epic music, epic shot. It's It, it hits you hard in this emotional moment when a man uh, at the end of this room, there's an incinerator. He takes a sled uh, that we see uh, from the near end of the shot, and at the command of, throw that junk in, he throws it into the incinerator, and it burns the sled. And as we see in this close-up shot of it burning, the word Rosebud is on this sled as a slush is evaporating off of it and the name chars into ash. And a billowing black cloud escapes the top of Xanadu as the beginning first shot of the whole movie, you know, with the no trespassing sign and the, the, sh the different shots of Xanadu all play in reverse to the point where it goes back into the ground. And then we get the end, uh, the end placard. So this is where we then reveal that the Kane's life, his, his childhood, was the rosebud that they never discovered. But we discovered it because we, as the camera, closed in. This is something that is mind-blowing, definitely, for the era. Because it's like, they didn't discover something. We did. They didn't know what his life meant. And they all burned all of his stuff until he he has no record of his existence at all. And the thing about this, the things that were burned, they're now up in smoke. They're just, they're just as good. They're like it's ghosts. It's billowing black smoke out of the out of the chimney. And and it'll just like I said, it, it's it's it, his life is a, is a ghost. So what did you think of this movie overall? Uh, Are you all kidding? The story elements. Well, okay, okay. I would say the story is is interesting, and I like to watch an actor really in his craft doing uh, doing a great job. That's what I like, is I like the drama and I like all that stuff, and that's good. The story is really good. It was fantastically told as well. Yeah, Yes, but the thing that, that kind of, it's the way that the story was told. You know, there's no, somebody once said there's no new stories, but it's in the, it's the fact that you're telling him that can make them different, or that, or that or yeah, the fact that Orson Welles is telling that makes it entirely different, a different style, and it also, you know, I got very emotionally hooked on this movie as well because you can see his rise and all of stuff, but also his his downfall as well, which hits very hard to the point where he's just cold man, abusive man. It's visually interesting to watch too because, and I, I'd have to say it's it's Orson Welles, you know, his his acting in that it's it, the the writing, yes, but if you turn off. If you turn off the sound, just turn off the sound, and I know the music is really good too, but if you turn off the sound, the visuals are, are captivating. And that's that's Toland, and that's Robert Wise editing it, and that's and that's Orson Welles' vision. Um, and honestly, that's that's what makes this movie. It definitely is. So if it's not the greatest movie of all time to you, it's definitely very much up there. It is probably within at least the top five top five listing and i don't like i said you know early in the podcast i i don't like saying a movie is the greatest of all time it's very difficult it's it's difficult to 
to to pick that because there are many regions, many regions, many many directors, many you know cinematographers, all of which with a different style and ways of doing things. This is one of the greats. One of the greats. Top five movies. Yeah, and and honestly, I, I the story I was I was fascinated not only by the movie but the story behind the making of it was equally fascinating. And also the innovation that it was because. This summing up all the things and per, all the things before some of the techniques and the deep focus, whatever, summing it all up into one movie and perfecting it and polishing it uh, to the greatest that it can be. It made a mark for the 1940s and the 1940s had this sort of probably radical shift because it's like this stuff started becoming the norm. And um, then we'd eventually, you know, get to the 1950s and whatever, and it's just like, it's a different style overall in the 1940s, but it's just all of this big growth, and Citizen Kane is a big stepping point in this growth. Yes. I will tell you, though, you know, I, I can watch Citizen Kane a couple of times, uh, but the the movie that we're going to do next, I I can watch that multiple times and still enjoy every minute of it and it's not if you watch Citizen it's Kane, not a masterpiece yes if you watch citizen kane multiple times you can still tell that there's mastery and you can still tell that it's a very well told story and you can still tell that the cinematography is way different than its time and much much better and much more of a vision that he had which still makes this mark today. The movie we're watching next is the uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, or Sierra Madre. And we're going to have a bunch of fun with that one. Yeah, we're going to have a ball. I, I honestly, I like the characters, and I like the character acting, and uh, and I'm sure you're, you're going to really like the story. Um, if you're not familiar with this movie, you should be, because uh, it's just, it's really fun to watch. There's not that many characters, but the way that they interact and play off each other it's uh it's chef's kiss in my opinion so um we're doing some really great movies here i mean come on em that and... was our citizen kane review that was our citizen kane review it's not going to be like most other citizen kane reviews because there's literally tons of them and this is very much studied in film school so we're probably one of a bunch of them so if you saw ours and you sort of liked it definitely check out others they might be better they might be cool they might be cool <laughs> sorry <laughs> so okay i i have something that i've been wanting to ask you as we end the podcast i want you to say something as if you're dying uh random that where if someone heard it standing outside your room as you're an old man they would be like what 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 was that from so what what's an, what's what's your version of Rosebud? What would you what would your last word be that people would puzzle over and it's just something really from your past? Bob the Builder. Can he do it? <laughs> Bob the Builder. Can he fix it? Bob. Bob. Something like that, right? I don't know. Can Bob the Builder fix it? I would say something like serendipity. I don't know, just something really vague and strange and mysterious. Anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> Totalitarian. Yeah. An electroencephalograph. Deoxyribonucleic <laughs> acid. <laughs> yes. So um, we'll I will... We'll see you next time. We will. We'll see you next time. Uh, and have a good one. And uh, check this movie out. And be a citizen. It's a great one. Be a good citizen and see this movie. Bye now. 
don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at CinematicFanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast. Ending transmission now. Now.